goblins and goblins and welcome to another scary edition of the director's club podcast for this episode i am graced with another with another fiendishly fantastic friend to the show who you will remember from the infamous horror show 2014 spectacular as well as his legendary appearance on the dario argento episode he is a horror film aficionado creator of the director's club and pop culture club logos that are popping up all over the web as well as a writer for dvd active he is none other than gabe powers hello hi gabe (laughs) hi (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like that. I, I like that you, you just come on and say hello. And, hello. Uh, yeah, that's that's how it should be. Like sometimes when I do these really rambunctious introductions and I get a little overzealous, especially when I'm interviewing people I really like, they're like, "Oh my gosh, that introduction was so lovely." You know, <laughs> it's it gets a little silly sometimes, but I love them. I love everybody that's appeared on the show. Um, but I also love the short and sweet. Like if you, I, I can imagine if you were given an award, your acceptance speech would be, "Thank you, thank you very much." Yeah. Maybe not even the very much. It's a little okay. It's a little superfluous. That works. And so, as most listeners probably know by looking at the show title, you have you opted for Stuart Gordon when I presented you with an option here. Um, and I think you chose, much like Indiana Jones at the end of Holy Grail, I think you chose wisely. Um, yes. Because I'm actually uh, more excited this time around than I was for Toby Hooper. And I know a lot of Hooper fans might have been bummed out that I was quite indifferent to a lot of his work. Uh, but I'm not always necessarily head over heels for some of Gordon's films, but watching them was a little bit more pleasurable for reasons we'll get into later on. Um, uh, for- and you gave me the choice of Hooper or Gordon, yeah. And that was, I I'm pretty much on the level there with you. Even his not great movies are are interesting, and Hooper Hooper's a little hard, a little a little <laughs> hard to appreciate sometimes. Yeah, N- none of Gordon's films felt like a slog, even if. Well, we'll get into one in particular that yeah. uh, we both watched late in the game here, and uh, I was like, oh, okay, why was this one praised so much by other podcasters? We'll never know, but <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting to talk about just because like, later on in his career, he did sort of, much like Cronenberg, delve away into horror and sort of got into more like psychological horror as opposed to straight-on horror, which is kind of fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, when directors do that. But first and foremost, I do want to give a plug to Patrick's latest bonus episode, uh, one of one of a couple <laughs> that you're going to be hearing this month. Him and Robert Reinecke uh, shot the shit on many horror anthology films, from Dead of Night all the way up to Trick or Treat. And uh, he edited it beautifully, I gotta say. The, the discussion is a lot of fun. I, um, I learned a lot. And you couldn't ask for a better pair of horror film fans until well you know when we get to the next bonus episode featuring patrick and a certain somebody uh which was which might be the most anticipated podcast of the month if not the year from from the sound from the looks of patrick's letterboxed uh comments i I think there's there's a lot of excitement for the next horror show sequel coming very very soon um i can't wait to let them all down It's just going to be six hours on The Curse 2, The Bite. 
It's just going to be me holding up a middle finger at the microphone, <laughs> but you can't see it, so it won't even be that much fun. Okay. But Curse to the Bite, I could talk about that for an hour and a half at I'm, least. I'm, I'm going to track that one down based on your... I'm, I'm actually going to re-listen to the first one, too, and um, that that was one that stood out from, from when I listened to it last year, and I was like, yeah, I need to track that one down. That's something I should I would probably enjoy from the Make sure it. it's the unrated version, though. Okay. There's a really cut-to-hell R-rated version. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I, and I, I would definitely encourage listeners to just visit Patrick's Letterboxd and look for that list... You know, the, many of the comments there listed their lists, and I discovered some titles just by you know browsing through. And there's some quality things in there, and I, stuff I'd never heard of, stuff that's really flown under the radar. I I, I was really pleased to see Extro listed a mm. few times there, and now it's actually playing at the Music Box of Horrors. Which uh, I'm joining Patrick with. I decided, yeah, I'm going to go. I, I with a lineup that good, um, I, I really do want to go this year. It's been a few years since I've actually been to the Music Box of Horrors, and you know, I, I it's it's been a while since Patrick and I have uh, done anything together in person. And what better way to celebrate, you know, Halloween and the horror show episode coming up than by joining him at the Music Box for that? But seeing Extro and like Frankenhooker with an audience. That's going to be a yeah. blast. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, w- I was going to try to go, but eh, too many expenses all pile up. Yeah, that happens. That happens. Will, uh, someday. Someday I'll be there. Yeah, a, lot, a lot's not going that on. Far. <laughs> a lot's not going that on. Far. And uh, really quickly, I have a couple of things I wanted to mention that I bet most people won't be excited to hear about here at the top, but I really want to encourage any listener out there that likes the show, that listens regularly to leave an iTunes review. The last one we got in September was just so, so, so nice. Like, I hadn't looked back um, in a while. I just was, you know, uh, bored on my phone, and just for the heck of it, I looked under the iTunes podcast list and typed in Director's Club, looked under the reviews, and lo and behold, there was one from last month that was just, like, ridiculously nice. I think it was from Movie Nerd Zero. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it was just really, really sweet. And I really want to encourage people, you know, if you could leave a four or five star rating and leave it at that, that'd be great. Or you could go all the way and leave a paragraph review. And if you do, I'm going to I'm going to throw some incentive your way because I, I know I know some podcasts out there do this. And I think I want to start, you know, occasionally throwing this people's way because I, I'm nice. I try to be. <laughs> so if you leave a iTunes review in the next couple of months, you'll automatically be entered to win a $25 Amazon gift card. Woo! Wow. That's, hey. I'll, I'll, yeah. Yeah, you can, um, I'm sure you can buy some Blu-rays. I'm sure, I'm sure you can buy some Scream Factory Blu-rays with, uh, with 25 bucks. Um, and if you basically, if you just leave a review and send me an email with the username that you left the review under, and I see it pop up in iTunes, I'm going to be checking you know every other day or so. I will jot down your name, and then I'm going to, in a couple of months, reach into the hat, pull out a name, and bam, you might just win an Amazon gift card for 25 bucks. What a great Christmas gift, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. And I'm, I think there's going to be another opportunity, too, uh, for all of you out there to win a, a gift card that I'm going to talk about later on. So that's just something I, I think can be done just to help boost our listenership, our ratings, and 
boost us up in the iTunes aggregate, whatever that is. Um, I just think I just think it's a it's a really cool thing, you know, to read good reviews, and I, I'm hoping nobody nobody leaves any more one or two star reviews, but. Um, I, 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 I should probably preface that too. If you leave a one or two star review, I don't know if I'm going to be kind enough to um, uh, enter you in the gift card contest. <laughs> so, uh, preferably in the higher range, four or five star uh, review would be preferred. <laughs> at least you're at least you're honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's about it. I, um, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have a really interesting discussion here. Because, uh, well, you know what, first, since I did this with um, Daniel Baldwin on the last episode, and I have an opportunity, since I have you here on the line, Gabe, I wanted to ask, just because it has come up on a couple of other podcasts I've listened to, this idea of a horror renaissance as of late, with things Mm. like... You know, the Babadook and It Follows. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's just a lot of quality horror coming out. Do you feel that this is a prime time? Is this a horror renaissance right now that we're going through? Um, I would say that probably about a little less than 10 years ago, we had a major studio kind of horror re- renaissance. Mm-hmm. And that has died off. And now we're kind of a more in an independent one. And I think that it it's more interesting in some ways than the last one, but yeah, I yeah, I suppose I would agree with that. And, and it's just it's something different. I think that 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 maybe from like two thousand two to two thousand nine, there was a definite uh, upswing in, but it was almost all studio stuff. Whereas these are these are much smaller productions and foreign productions too that are getting more more viewing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even something like Goodnight Mommy, I was surprised to get you know kind of the attention it got, and uh, even I don't know how the Green Inferno got the wide release that it got. The fact that it played the suburbs was just like really. Yeah, it was pretty. (laughs) It was pretty incredible. Um, Yeah, and of course I I still I I managed to not go see it so. I lose a little cred there, I suppose. <clears throat> uh, I'm, I'm not too high up on Eli Roth's last two films. I mean, I think they're, I think they're good and they're reliably Eli Roth in tone. Um, and you know, obviously, Green Inferno has the gore factor going for it. But um, yeah, like Knock Knock, I think that just went straight to VOD. I don't know if it mm-hmm. played in the theater or not, but I think, um, eh, you got Keanu, you got problems. Yeah, you, you got some problems going on there. <laughs> he, he's had a couple good movies. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah. John Wick. John Wick was good. It was all right. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think it's I think it's just an interesting time, and even Mike D'Angelo wrote like I, I mean he's him and I are kind of on the same page with Unfriended as it being good, not great. Um, and I know Patrick is a huge fan of it. But just like the the way Unfriended was filmed and it just sort of being a really unique entry into the horror genre is something of note regardless. Yeah, I mean, it was... Yeah, it, that's a good... I mean, even even a movie like... And I don't want to talk about it too much because we're going to talk about it on the thing. But even a movie like It Follows, when it... I think that in the end, it sort of falls apart. But it, it in the long run, something like It Follows or Unfriended uh, holds together in the long run because it's it's so unique yeah and and it's it's it has this modern quality that uh 
that I think that the old, other movies I was talking about from earlier in the uh, the last decade were much more throwback quality. Where I think I think they're kind of moving away from throwback and kind of doing something different with uh, with the genre lately. Yeah, I would agree with that. At least there's there's some original material coming out, um, and you know even I mean even the sort of maybe 2002. I'm thinking of stuff like The Ring. Uh, you know, obviously that was a remake, but it was, I, I still think it was a quality remake and seeing that mm-hmm. in the theater really freaked me out and it wasn't something that relied on jump scares. Uh, and you know, there's, there's some like interesting, you know, Gothic horror, uh, that emerged too around that period. I, I, I recently watched the skeleton key and I don't think it's a great movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it has good atmosphere going for it. Um, and you know, there's like stuff like the others that came out. Um, that might have been before 2002, actually. But uh, yeah, it I mean, was close. It was awful. Close. It might have been 2001. Yeah, <clears throat> but I mean, even the even the the rougher and sometimes junky stuff like the Saw movies and Hostel, which I, I like the Hostel movies. Um, those mm-hmm. those were new uh, slasher movies, basically. Yeah, and I think that they 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 were needed at the time because we were in a situation uh, socially where people wanted more violent, visceral movies. And I think we're in a situation now where something like It Follows can build upon the uh, uh, slasher theme in a, a little bit more of a, uh esoteric kind of way. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's a very thoughtful film in its themes. And, um, you know, something like The Babadook really... Is a is, is kind of a smart commentary on the grieving process. Same with Goodnight Mommy too. Uh, I mean, it's yeah. I haven't seen that one yet, but the yeah. Babadook was what it was. Yeah, it was transcendent. It was yeah. That's I, I worked with kids for years, and that there's this this certain again. I'm going to be repeating all this stuff, so I shouldn't say. But there's <laughs> something about that movie where uh, they capture the fear of not being able to control someone uh, who you're supposed to be protecting. Yeah, and it's a very specific anxiety. Yeah, but, yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, yeah. That's 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 kind of the it's kind of the vibe I'm getting lately, and I'm I'm curious to see where things go from here. And you know, anytime anytime a movie gets you know gets some some buzz going behind it, you know, even if I'm not like as crazy about the director or even the premise or something, if enough people are talking about it in certain circles. I, I'm definitely stoked for it, and you know, I'm, I'm I'm sure there'll be plenty more to come that isn't a Paranormal Activity sequel. Yeah. So, thank goodness for that. Yes. Uh, so, speaking of originality, Stuart Gordon. Stuart did from beyond King of the Ants. Reanimator is a classic. Dolls Fortress Robot Juxta Castle Freak. Make some 
Because I think from the very beginning, he was a, a controversial figure, but very creative, going all the way back to his theatrical productions <clears throat> that he did, I believe, out of the University of Wisconsin. Yeah, well, and then he became a local boy for you guys. Yeah, totally. He um, he moved to Chicago and worked with the Organic Theater, and he uh, became buddies with David Mamet, produced plays like Sexual Perversity in Chicago, um, and did the... Uh, I, know, I know Patrick sent us the link. I did not get a chance to watch Bleacher Bums. It's one of those things that my aunt actually had like a bootleg VHS tape of it, <laughs> uh, you know, being a diehard Cubs fan. From like I don't know maybe the late '80s or something, and I remember watching it as a kid, but it, like falling asleep and not really getting into it at the time. But obviously, when you have Joe Mantegna on board, I, it's something I will watch at some point. Um, but yeah, obviously he started out in theater. He I don't know if it was in Chicago, might have been in Wisconsin that he did like this crazy Peter Pan adaptation where hippies got nude. Um, so he he's a uh, <laughs> He's a provocateur in a lot of ways and certainly wanted to, you know, challenge people's expectations of, you know, what what to expect when going into a play. Uh, and, you know, I know that he tried to get the Organic Theater to help fund his first film, but mm-hmm. when um, that didn't happen, he took his vision over to Hollywood and, boy, oh boy, didn't outcome what I consider to be a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. His first film. The first time a head gave head. Yes. <laughs> Reanimator. Um, it's one of the. It's, I feel like I'm repeating myself with um, you know what I was saying about when I was uh, reviewing uh, Toby Hooper and Texas Chainsaw that it's like, what can you say? It's it's one of those movies that all horror fans can acknowledge is, um, you know, uh, in the upper tier of classic horror films in that it does almost everything right. Every time I watch it, I love it all the more. It finds the right balance in ways that I think, I mean, like I can even, you know, as much as I love Sam Raimi's films and something like evil dead Two, evil Dead Two really amps up the slapstick comedy angle and reanimator still finds, that balance between horror and comedy here. Um, and the performances are uniformly terrific. It's, you know, it's a tricky tone because if one person gets the balance between horror and comedy off, the whole thing kind of just crumbles and it never once does. And one thing I noticed rewatching it again is how cut and dry it's put together. There are actually no exteriors, I think. In the whole movie, there's one at the very beginning. I'm pretty okay. sure the only yeah. one was when they're showing the Zurich Hospital. Right. I'm pretty sure that's the only one. Yeah, and like there are just obviously really clever cuts. Besides the early one segueing into a sex scene. Um, yes. <laughs> so I mean, and you know, I, I want to get your take on the film as a whole. Um. So yeah. Well, I think that what you said about you know, comparing it to Evil Dead, um. It pet theory that there is a there's a three kind of a three prong horror gross out horror kind of comedy thing from that era, and it's uh, Evil Dead Two, Dead Alive or Brain Dead, if you prefer, and uh, the Reanimator, and I think that uh, I don't know about every other horror fan, but when I was a teenager, I was all about 
Dead Alive because it was the grossest. Yeah. And then I in my 20s, I was more about Evil Dead 2 because it was a little more... Uh, uh, I, I guess Raimi, Raimi's movie had a little bit more film, you know, exciting filmmaking behind it. Exactly. Yeah. But as I get older, Reanimator is the one that is the easiest to rewatch. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's in part because even though it is totally uh, uh, has these very immature jokes like the head giving head and, uh, uh, you know, naked zombies running around and just you know gross out stuff it still has a certain maturity to it and um and is is wittier than the other ones i think is what it comes down to yeah i mean it has its fair share of you know zombie kind of puns and things like that but yeah it's it's certainly you know a lot of it is based on you know jeffrey combs and how you know, he's become such a horror icon, too, in the same way that Bruce Campbell did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, you know, it's interesting, you know, watching it in light of what I brought up with uh, with Toby Hooper. Because, like, you know, I, 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 of course, listen to a couple of podcasts. I try not to, like, inundate myself with, like, let's see what other podcasters say about Stuart Gordon. But um, I turned off one pretty early on because the way they introduced, like, Barbara Cr- Crampton into the conversation was by focusing on the fact that she gets nude a lot in, in Gordon's films. And, mm. you know, what I was saying about Hooper's, like, you know, um, sort of need to show nudity for no reason at times, my feelings for Gordon, you know, Stuart Gordon's uses of uh, nudity in films actually sits with me a lot better because with Hooper it feels gratuitous, for for Stuart Gordon, I think to show a naked woman in peril is a shocking image that feels appropriate for the moment and not necessarily, um, you know, exploitive. There's obviously a lot of sex and debauchery in Lovecraft. Uh, well, yeah, it's about pulp. It's yeah. Uh, uh, Hooper's Hooper's movies became pulpier later, I guess. Um, stuff like Life Force, but Gordon. Gordon's best movies all have significant kind of EC Comics pulpy sure. uh, colorfulness about them that makes those kind of regressive gender norms feel more natural, I suppose. Yeah, like, and, and Barbara it, Crampton it didn't feel like, you know, she was being used or uncomfortable. She didn't feel uncomfortable with it at all. I mean, Stuart Gordon um was apparently a you know a gentleman a very respectful guy and just kind of like you know really down to earth and you know one of the things that he said um in an interview was like you know what it comes down to as a director obviously you have to have a vision but really the the most important thing to being a good director is just being a good decision maker yeah and and i like that idea like if you can just make a, a good decision and work with the right people then you got a good team, and you and a movie is going to turn out good. Um, and in the case of Reanimator, clearly that that happened. This is it's a it's a it's a special film that even sneaks its way into something like American Beauty. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of funny. Yeah, and 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 Reanimator is a little bit rougher than some of the later ones, but it it has yeah, yeah it has the similar um, and and it and be, I think it's because of his his theater work the uh, the 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 character work is strong and 
in in a in a way that and then we'll get to this when we get to that one movie that we were not talking about yet it, it's it's got a stagey feel and it's melodramatic and like the barbara crampton and bruce abbott characters play their side of the story very straight to the point where it's almost cheesy like mm-hmm. they're kind of soap opera relationship and that her dad won't let and they have that whole like talk where he realizes that she might be kidnapped and he runs in to save her and she's fine and she kind of gives him a little like you know this isn't going to work out speech right and like that kind of scene needs to be there or or else it just becomes uh uh, uh jeffrey combs and and uh uh, David Gale screaming at each other and chewing scenery and and uh, and that's I think that's what Gordon brings to it with his whole theatricality and his way of handling many actors at once and handling actors based on their strengths and not necessarily uh, he's not necessarily he's not setting out to be funny with it uh, according I watched it with the commentary this last time because I realized I hadn't ever watched the commentary and they he says that it was not supposed to be a comedy when they set out just you know start it they weren't hiring people because they were funny mm. or even planning on making it funny but it just that's the way it worked out and it was organic to them it seemed well i imagine working in a morgue you got to have a you got to have a sense of humor to cope with and that's ex- exactly what he says on the commentary is it started to develop <laughs> into a comedy because he kept on talking to actual morgue uh, attendants oh and my gosh who all had really dark senses of humor yeah, I I can imagine that being the case. You know, I mean, I give credit because clearly, you know, his theater background, you know, lent itself to working really well with actors. And I've gone on record, even though Sam Raimi is one of my favorite directors, I've always said, Raimi is not necessarily an actor's director. Even in Evil Dead 2, the other victims that come to the house later on, they're pretty much caricatures that you don't mm-hmm. care about. Um, whereas here, I, I definitely, you know, sense that there are, are real people in peril. There, you know, um, uh, Barbara Crampton's character and Bruce Abbott's character, and you know, uh, uh, her dad even. And I, I, mm-hmm. I gotta say that like the the villain in this really, I mean, that, I think I think it's a huge thing with because I always kind of elevated from beyond being almost on par with reanimator until I watch uh, reanimator and from beyond really close together, because I think reanimator has a much stronger and more fully realized villain at the core with, uh, yeah, David, David Gale. Gale. Yeah. And he, uh, his character was, uh, I w- um, something I did or I already knew about it is his character. He, he was cut back a lot. There, there was, um, hmm. had, did you ever see the R rated cut? back in the day when oh yeah yeah i've seen both. how they there's all those extra scenes where he has like he can hypnotize people right and that explain it's supposed to explain why he can communicate with his body when his head gets chopped off and how he can have control over the zombies even right. with his weird little pink drill i don't just never really and at some point somebody said you don't need all this information and so they cut it all out hmm. because it's an incredibly efficient movie but the point being that that even with all of his uh, you know expositional backstory cut, David Gale is still such a strong character in uh, in the film. Yeah, and I think you know it, it sets up very early on his his creepy attraction, 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's smart to introduce, and you know, it, it just again shows a need for Gordon to uh, focus on characterization and not just like let's get to the let's get to the gore and get to the laughs and let's get to the uh, magic tricks here. You know, he does and, and it's take not time. like he's he's being overly precious or trying to make it hundred percent realistic. Sure, it's but it's the fact that it's valuable melodrama. Yeah. It, it, it and and it and that kind of thing that, that you don't actually see too often because I, in more modern movies because I think that a lot of filmmakers are afraid of uh, theatricality in a certain way. Um, they want they want more natural uh, performances and dialogue, and so there's yeah something about these early Gordon movies that has the theatricality that I like so much mixed with the pulpiness that makes it somehow more believable than movies that are trying to be realistic. Yeah. And I think that's a huge reason why something like stuck almost felt like, not just, I don't want to say like a return to form, but just a, almost like a callback to the very, very early work because there's the theatricality of it all, but there's the realism to it. There's this really interesting mix between pitch black comedy and tension, nail biting tension throughout. Um, and you know, you know, with like I said at the beginning here, it's just it's really hard to find that balance to where one doesn't overwhelm the other. And you know, it, it, it's got to be challenging at the time too. I mean, like, I mean, you just said that uh, they didn't set out to make a comedy. But maybe it, organically that just sort of happens in this kind mm-hmm. of situation. Um, you know, like laughter is probably like an anecdote to just experiencing this sort of terror. You almost have to laugh when a severed head is going down on you. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously she's screaming in that moment, but clearly, um, you know, he sort of alternates between humor and horror very skillfully. And, you know, in some cases, you know, horror directors do that very sloppily to where, you know, you don't understand what their intent was or the tone gets, you know, mangled up in something like The Mangler. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Reanimator is just, it's an incredibly interesting film to go back to. It never, it's never something like, you know, I could, I could put it on again tomorrow and just enjoy it all yeah. over again. It never yeah, gets and- tiresome. And I think that um, another thing, if with it being his first real movie, um, is the the fact that he just leaves the camera alone so often that it's it's like watching a play at times. And he points out something on the commentary that I had never really noticed, which was uh, he keeps uh, perching the camera over Bruce Abbott's shoulder because he wants Bruce Abbott to be the audience surrogate. And also says that of all he watched because he wasn't he was always a horror uh fiction fan but he, he was said that he he wasn't that he didn't hadn't watched that many horror movies uh recently so he kind of kind of watched a bunch of them before he shot reanimator and that he claims the that the polanski ones like repulsion were the ones that had the strongest effect on him oh, and wow. it's not something i would have put together until he said it and i realized that there is a lot of that um that kind of uh, uh, subjective horror, I guess is what you'd call it, subjective uh, camera work that's not like point-of-view camera work like Dario Argento would do or something like that. 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's something to look for again on a, upon a rewatch, like uh, you know, over the shoulder or you know, um, yeah. There's that's really interesting to to have that choice because like that is that is something like I'm sure you can find throughout Hitchcock's career, and I know that um, you know Gordon has cited that, that Psycho is still the scariest movie ever made to him, mm-hmm. and if you see that at an impressionable age, and you know and it has an effect on you, of course. Uh, you know, I watched that on the big screen not too long ago, and even if it was a you know a Blu-ray Blu-ray projection, there is no denying the power of that film. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously, there's a nice connection with Psycho. <laughs> uh, that, that, not the the musical one. You mean? Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah, there was apparently some sort of litigation over that at some point. There had to have been. Clearly. And and Empora, uh, I can't remember who did it. It was uh, uh, one of the. It was one of the Full Moon guys. He 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 thought that he was doing homage. He didn't really. He it didn't dawn on him that people would call it a ripoff. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyhow. Yeah, from there we'll go to from beyond because um, I don't know. It's weird, like how you know memory gets you know tangled up because for some reason i might i I'm, i want to say i might have seen this this might have been my first gordon film because it's one of those cases of like me going into the video store and um you know being taken by the cover and just uh being very curious about it and i th- think i'd saw this first but at the same time it's kind of fuzzy um <laughs> i uh with this one for me I actually held off on watching it for a while because I was at a point in my young life when I was all about unrated cuts and I was Uh. convinced I had read in Fangoria that there was a lot of stuff cut out of it and I was convinced that there was going to be an unrated version. So I avoided it for a long time, long time meaning maybe a year. A whole five Um, minutes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I very distinctly remember in the early 2000s uh, reading that they had discovered, finally discovered the cuts in like a closet or something, and it was like up there, like it, it's it's up there with the, the the you know they find the 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 silent film that was lost for years. For me, the idea of there being those you know maybe it totals a minute or a minute and a half, but those cuts being back and from beyond was just the most exciting thing in the world to me when I was I don't know twenty three or something. <clears throat> Yeah, um, I think the reason why I I love this movie so much is obviously people who know me know I'm a big brain nerd and love neuroscience. And the uh, f- uh, the focus here on the uh, pineal gland is really interesting. And even if you do some light research, it, it's not too uh, uh, it's not too far from the truth. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. you know. Um, they don't grow out of your head. But. No, they don't grow. It doesn't grow out of your head, and you don't necessarily. I mean, there are there are reports from you know people who've done experimental drugs like DMT that they do have you know incredible experiences that you know they say they go into another dimension or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, this it, it's it's it very much mirrors. Reanimator at the at the beginning in terms of like having a prologue of something crazy happening um, involving Jeffrey Combs once again, right? Uh, but the, you know the, the prologue is actually the entire story. 
Yeah. No, yeah. That's yeah, that- that's it. That's the story. And they wrote everything else after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, that's that's actually very true because I I haven't read a lot of Lovecraft recently, but I, you know, especially after listening to the horror anthology episodes like, yeah, I really got to go back. There's some Poe I should read, some Lovecraft I should reread and definitely some Richard Matheson. Did did um, you ever read the reanimator stories? Uh no, I haven't. They are super racist. Oh god. They are like like put your teeth on edge racist. That's scary. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. It's really bad. Like like there's always a little bit of racism in Lovecraft, but he just sort of let it all out for the reanimator stories. <clears throat> yeah. So, yeah, this time, you know, Jeffrey Combs you know, he's a he, he's a doctor that activates this crazy resonator machine sees these strange creatures in the air and i might as well just get this out of the way those those strange creatures in the air kind of kill the movie for me now they're it's it's a horrible special effect um those sort of flying fish things are not scary um they the, remind uh, they remind me of those 3d talking demon things from freddy's dead Do you yeah know? they're kind of the same yeah though they're basically muppets i mean yeah. i like them but yeah they're basically muppets yeah they look kind of silly there, there's a whole dis- – again, I watched this one with the commentary because I realized I had never seen the commentary. And they have these descriptions of what they wanted originally. It was going to be like a cathedral when the machine is re- – the resonator is moving. Um, they're going to be in a big cathedral and it was a totally different dimension and they just didn't have the budget. So it became kind of fish monsters. But then it also became more metaphysical instead of an adventure story hmm. where people get stuck in another dimension or whatever. So it, it ultimately it's more Gordon. Uh, more of a Gordon-ish movie. Sure. Um, which is good, but yeah, they did have to sacrifice a lot f- with the budget. I do have a thing for these interdimensional crazy horror movies, you know, something like Phantasm, where you have access to this other world that you have no idea mm-hmm. what it is, and you know, it's sort of left to the imagination. Uh, and I will say that H.P. Lovecraft and Patrick Rapole have something in common. They both hate fish. So I can I can kind of see why you know the idea of these flying fish could be uh, you know scary in, in somebody's. Somebody, I mean, somebody's thinking mind. about a fish floating in the sky with giant teeth—that's scary. Yeah, but it's not necessarily a frightening image. No, I just film. I'm also wasn't I was also a little bit lost in terms of what their purpose was by freeing Barbara Crampton towards the end. Like, the idea is that sh- they are attracted to, it's not explained, but uh, the idea is they're attracted to movement. They're, what it is, is it's the pit in the pendulum. And the pit in the pendulum, uh, he frees himself by shaking his hands so the rats eat the the um, straps holding him down. Oh, so they were okay. just doing the pit in the pendulum, but with someone in a vertical position uh, and space fish instead of rats. <laughs> <laughs> Space fish coming to a theater near you. That should be the you know. So this would make a good space fish movie. I can yeah. guarantee. I'd be more excited about that than the new Star Wars. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We don't need to talk about that now. No, let's there, not. Let's just. There's avoid plenty it. of podcasts probably talking about it right yeah. this second. Um, so yeah, uh, there's there's a little stretch here after after the you know the credit sequence that um, you know it, some people might kind kind of find it like you know tedious, but it's just totally up my alley because you have uh, Barbara Crampton doing cat scans. That's like the best yeah. of both. That's like the best of both worlds for me. And cat scans uh, were a new thing then. 
they sure. said that they had to recreate. I've been through probably 700 CAT scans, and that was other than the green. Actually, you know what? No, they even have the green light. It's just not that bright. Oh, yeah, um, that's right. Yeah. But they apparently, that, they, they said on the commentary, that another thing, you keep bringing up stuff that I happen to have written down. They said they made that from scratch looking at one because they weren't allowed to use a real one. So it's just like particle board thrown together. Oh, wow. And it looks like a real CAT scan machine. <laughs> That's very realistic. Jeez. And it was like a new thing at the time, so they didn't have like specs or anything. They just had to go look at one, I guess. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, so I mean it's a question of um, you know, Jeffrey Combs' sanity and, you know, schizophrenia and things like that. So yeah, I mean I, I like that uh you know that obviously we know something crazy is going on in the house, but I like that, you know, the the doctor is trying to uncover a mystery of sorts here. And of course, we get Ken Foray, yep. De- Detective Bubba. Like, like I, I'm not even kidding when I say that Ken Foray and uh, 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 Jeffrey Combs are my two all-time favorite actors. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And, yeah, and I got to meet both of them in uh, Chicago, and Barbara Crampton was there, too. When was this? This was about three years ago. God damn it! Why was yeah there? And they they premiered some full moon feature that they had rediscovered that had uh, uh, Crampton and uh, uh, Combs in it. That was very short. It was like a thirty minute movie, hmm. um, and it was adorable because Barbara Crampton came to the movie, which was over at that movie theater at uh, the Movie View or something. It's over next to the convention center. Yeah, there's over the in- there's the Movico. Movico, that's the one. It was yeah. there. It was just there. And as we're... Uh, so two things. One, uh, Robert Cranton came with Adrian King from the first Friday the 13th. Oh, wow. Who I don't think was signing. I think that they're just friends. That's so cool. <laughs> I'm not sure, but but like I, I swear they just came together because they're friends. And I was, it was, and then we took the... Uh, we got in the elevator with Barbara Crampton. She got in our elevator and just talked, uh, was talking some girl's ear off the whole time and missed her floor because she was having so much fun. Yeah. Um, I, as opposed to Linda Blair, whose handler came and told us we call, couldn't get on the same elevator oh, as Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Barbara Crampton came right on in our elevator, didn't even, you know, didn't even stop her story, took it to the, and then, oh, and the best part is Ken Forey's walking around that movie Cove movie theater, and he's got a, a entourage <laughs> of just nerds following him, and he's telling them stories and waving his arms. He just walks by me at like 50 miles an hour, and he's actually taller than me, which is something that never happens. I always go meet these people, and I'm not that tall, I'm 6'3", and they're all short, like, sure. They're all under six feet, it turns out. But he's not. He's he actually a huge guy. So that was he looks like anyway, it. like back to the movie. I'm sorry. No, that's that, that, that was that, just an exciting coincidence that all those three people have to that, be that, there. That would have excited me beyond belief. And Barbara Crampton just seems so ridiculously cool. I mean She was. I mean outrageously nice. Yeah, I mean and just the fact that she's still, you know, actively li- living up to her scream queen status even at her age with your next and What's that other one that was just recent? Uh, we are still oh, here. Yeah. She's really good. And yeah, we're yeah, still yeah, here. yeah. She doesn't get much to do in your next, but in we are still here. She gets some good crying scenes. Like, yeah, she's good in it. Yeah, no, I saw. I, she's I, genuinely good. I saw in it, it. Uh, a while ago. I liked it, didn't love it, but I thought she was good for sure. Um, but yeah. you know, yeah, from beyond, it really is. You know, I mean, you can tell the limitations on the budget and you know the the fact that they're sort of confined to the house for most of the movie, but. It still creeps me out. Um, 
you know, even even the little bee-like creatures <laughs> that that eat for you up. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 really freaky. Um, did, yeah, it's um, it's also maybe the pinkest movie ever. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, that's true. Very pink. <laughs> like I, I just like it, it. Its aesthetic is very pleasing to me. That and Reanimator are two movies that just. I could probably have on in the background while doing other things, and and even though they're supposed to be horror movies, I think they would relax me just based on their their glowing green and pink aesthetics. Yeah, just hit the right spot. No, it is. It's a really good looking movie. It's really yeah. The I, I do like the aesthetics of it, um, and just like the, and you know just throwing in this weird seedy sexuality because of the pineal gland, um, you know, being stimulated like that. That's really interesting and you know again i don't feel it's exploitive because that's actually what happens well it's it's more equal opportunity than reanimator yeah. because both combs and uh Forey end up nude basically nude too. right right um yeah and there's this little section where um you know combs is sort of running amok in the hospital Whoa, god where yeah. he's eating people's brains and Oh. Those are most of the scenes that were cut out. Him sucking eyeball uh, people's brains through their eye holes was pretty much what the MPA made them cut. Those are most of the deleted scenes that are now back in the movie. Oh man! For the the Blu-ray and DVD. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you know, the ending is kind of like a typical ending for that era of horror, where it's just like, oh, uh, all <laughs> all things kind of go uh, go amuck and things, you know. Get, just get out of control and the house sort of explodes and then one person is left to sort of just go crazy. <laughs> um, it mm. almost, you know, in, in a way it's, it reminds me of like something like the gate where it's just like, okay, we did this one thing and now the whole house is going to explode and we're left to tell the tale. <laughs> I feel like it's, it's poltergeist was the one that really sure. yeah. literally exploded the house or no imploded the house in that case, I guess. Um, and one thing I didn't notice until rewatching it is that um, both Reanimator and From Beyond have a, uh, a cyclical kind of visually cyclical ending where they kind of start and end at the same spot, at not including uh, Reanimator's prologue, but it starts with um, uh, Bruce Abbott giving a, uh, not CPR but a chest chest massage to a dying patient and ends with him trying to do it with Barbara Crampton. <laughs> and then uh, From Beyond begins with, uh, what's the actress's name? Bunny something. I can't remember her name. Uh, witnessing the first attack thing, and then it ends with uh, oh, yeah. Barbara Crampton being blown out the window, and the same lady comes up and has witnessed the second thing go wrong. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of... Uh, um kind of like books bookends itself bookends yes yeah yeah it's it's also probably Car- carolyn purdy uh purdy good gordon's yeah carolyn purdy gordon's better role one of his her better roles um as the uh oh yeah doctor who's trying to to discredit crampton who is kind of a villain like her and combs have sort of switched places as far as their casting goes where combs is a perpetual victim mm-hmm. and crampton it's pretty much everything is her fault at a certain point in that movie uh, if they would have just left it off, that would have been the end of it. But she's the one who keeps turning the damn machine back on and stuff like that. She's as much as a, a, a villain as Dr. West is, I think. And in sure. both cases, there's a worse villain that then takes over the role for them. Um, and I was also I was also reminded 
because I don't know if I'd seen I don't know if I'd seen From Beyond in in, in a long time, but I recently rewatched um, Brain Damage, mm-hmm. which is a uh, mm-hmm. you know another sort of re- crazy horror comedy from the director of Basket Case. Is it he- Heffenlofer? Or how do you say his name? Uh, I yeah, I, I can't. I never actually said it aloud. <laughs> I know it's just, it's the guy who did Basket Case. I think everybody who's listening to this probably knows who I'm talking yes. about. But um, yeah, that's it. A, might actually be his best movie. I, I don't know if I want to quite go out on that limb, but I think you're I, right. I think I really like it. Me too. Me too. Again, it has a has a really interesting aesthetic with the blue. Yeah, it's really colorful. Really, really comic booky. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and it, it, again, it's like. There's a, a point in the movie too where um, you know Ken Foray sort of points out to Barbara Crampton about uh, like I've seen this behavior before and I've seen it in junkies in and, junkies yeah yeah and that's that's very much like that's all brain damage really is is like a drug addiction allegory yeah um, so there's like an interesting parallel between those two movies going on especially since like there's a little creature that pops out. <laughs> yeah, in brain damage. So yeah, though there's a great bit where uh, uh, on the commentary I was watching because it's a group commentary. So Barbara Crampton and uh, is on it, and uh, uh, Jeffrey Combs says something about how uh, uh, how he he didn't like having a dick on his head. <laughs> is the way he worded it with the <laughs> pineal gland. And he called it a dog dick, and then Barbara Crampton overheard this and said, "I'm not putting the dog dick in my mouth, Stuart." for the scene where she has to bite it off (laughs) i thought that was pretty funny (laughs) that it became something that disturbed them more than the idea of a pineal gland part of the brain squirting out the idea that it looked sort of like a dog's penis actually ended up bothering them more (laughs) oh my god (laughs) boy this movie just gets more charming and the more we talk about it you know what? It, it honestly does. Um, and I'm not even like joking. I, I like it a little bit more every time I see it, I think. Um, yeah. So from there we go to like all these movies came out. I think he made them really quickly. Technically he made dolls before reanimator on the exact same sets in Italy. He made it before reanimator. Yes. And they didn't release it until after. Wow. He shot them almost back to back on the same set. I'm guessing the, I'm guessing the effects must've taken a while. Yeah, exactly. That's what they said on the... Uh, that one, Dolls just came out on Blu-ray um, this year. Yeah. So I had it pretty fresh in mind already because I had to watch the commentary on that one. Um, yeah, and they, they, the, the, the stop-motion stuff was going to take time, so they shot it first. <clears throat> Again, very little to complain about here. It's um, kind of a grim fairy tale done right. Um delicate balance of comedy and horror um, mostly just a you know a dark comedy with a very nice central perspective from a young curious girl i knew i was going to like this movie when the giant teddy bear at the beginning comes to life mm-hmm. um it's just got that you know wide-eyed curiosity from you know a child going on in addition to gordon's sensibilities that you've come to expect um yeah i just um i, I watched it for the very first time and I was just like, wow, I, this is totally up my alley and something I should have seen at a, at a younger age. Um, especially think I, I, it'd be interesting if I decided at one point to marathon the Puppet Master movies, but I think I would probably pass out after a while. Um, well, I liked, and, and I liked it, those movies when I saw them as a kid. I have no idea how I'd feel about them now. They're not as good as you remember, probably, but, but they were Charles Brand productions. Yeah. And he made this with Gordon first. 
Ag Dolls actually has a, a it was it wasn't liked when it for, by the horror community at least. I only know these things because I have Fangoria magazines. The horror community wasn't really a big fan of it because um, it wasn't Lovecraft and it wasn't gory. In fact, it's it with the exception of maybe the bit where the eyeballs with the eyeballs. It's I would show it to a child. I I as long as I knew that child was was psychologically able to deal with the scariness. I think it's actually a good kids horror movie. Um and it was just not something that that fans wanted at the time. They wanted, you know, it was the it was the a time when when more gore and and outrageous special effects were more a bigger deal. Yeah, if a child can sit through Roll Dolls the Witches, I think they could handle something like this. It's Oh um, yeah. Oh, I would almost I mean, I don't know. I'm not actually I've never really had a doll fear like a lot of people seem to have. Yeah, I don't Which either. actually turns me off to a lot of killer doll movies. I've never been particularly fond of killer doll movies just because they're not frightening to me. The, the first Chucky is an exception because it's actually a pretty good uh kind of cop thriller almost <laughs> in a way, but um but I, like, I think I like that, the first two child's play movies. I think they're good. Yeah. I, they they have their moments. The the um usually it's about the the the, the spe- like uh, with the puppet master movies it's all about the s- special effects of the puppet masters. Yeah. Uh, or the puppets I should say. Uh yeah, the movies themselves are not much. Yeah, I think that was the thing I might have even seen them like on pay-per-view or something when they were coming out. I was like, "Ooh, Puppet Master 3, they got a new puppet. What does it do?" Yeah, exactly. It was like it was like uh when I was a kid watching Ninja Turtles, at a certain point you realize you're actually watching Ninja Turtles because you want to know what new toy you can buy. So they introduce another, you know, mutant so you can buy the toy. The Puppet Master movies you're more interested in what does the new Puppet Master do? Yeah. Does it uh like it has a drill for a head? It uh has <laughs> razors for arms it yeah i can't remember what the other ones are right now actually um i i smell a puppet master bonus episode in the future oh it would be rough i know <laughs> it'd be rough yeah so like i said you know this does have a fairy tale quality to it and um you know there's there's interesting characters that pop that pop up like the two british punk rock girls um and I, I meant to look this up. Who the you know who the guy ultimately ultimately the hero of the film? Where I've seen mm-hmm. him before, because um, um, he looks, he's great. Yeah, he is really great. Um, uh, I should I should have Lee. What should, would you have seen him? In? I should have had that ready anyway. But it's it, it's another good uh, Carolyn Purdy Gordon role as the well. He was mom. he was in La Bamba and War Games, so I've seen both of those. <laughs> I don't remember those movies very well. Yeah, War Games is good. Um, but yeah, I just... Um, oh, RoboCop 2. I remember him from RoboCop 2. Oh. Uh, okay, anyway. I should rewatch yeah. I should rewatch RoboCop 2 at some point, I guess. Well, he's, yeah, he's, he's also in The Pit and the Pendulum. Yeah, he is. Right. He's, uh, um, he's one of the... Uh, uh, the, the guys who does the, uh, the... He's one of the torturers. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, did, did you watch this for the first time, or is this this was one you've been oh, no. champion for a while? Th- I think, right? Yeah, this is one I've been like. I always tell people like, "Oh, you like Stuart Gordon? You should watch Dolls." And and it always is in print. There's always been a there's it was easy to find a VHS and DVD and now Blu-ray, but for some reason it just never really caught on. It really, I mean, it feels so much like a kids' film. I, I am afraid that. 
uh, it's sort of just got ignored for that aspect. Hmm. Yeah, it goes, it goes down so easy. It's also really short. Oh, it's 77 minutes and that's yeah. including credits. Wow. And it's also one towards the end. I was like, you know what? I could, I could see a sequel. I really could. I could, I would those, be, I the, would, those okay. family, that family. You know what? I yeah. could see a TV series based around the old couple teaching lessons to jerk adults. <laughs> yeah. No, totally. You, know, you only could, survive if you're a child at heart. Yeah, I mean, but I like, like it, and I honestly think that it has. Um, and I don't know a lot. I'm just barely too old to have ever watched um, those Nickelodeon horror shows. Um, Are you afraid of the dark and goosebumps? Sure, but I get the feeling, based on what I know about those shows, that the people who made them must have been aware of dolls in some way, because the 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 feel of it, the look of it, the 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 sense of humor it it just feels like something that would be early 90s kids tv but good kids tv yeah it's interesting that not too long ago it might have been when we recorded the joe dante episode i checked out a couple of episodes of eerie indiana yes just because i I remember that one that one i remember yeah just because joe dante was you know at the at the helm of that show um and i i will probably always go on record to tell everybody you have to at least even if you've never seen an episode of the show find the final episode of that series because that's when joe dante knew the show was being canceled so he did a whole crazy meta scream like episode that made fun of the show that made fun of him um mocked the studio for canceling the show it is insanely satirical um in a way that joe dante does so well so um, it's almost like the Gremlins two of Erie, Indiana, but yeah, I think that that show that show to me, even though I didn't watch Goosebumps or Are You Afraid of the Dark, probably fit in that category. Yeah, um, so. I would say yeah, and I have seen that show, and and I, I remember vaguely remember watching Pete and Pete was another yeah, one yeah, that yeah. kind of didn't have a, as much of a fantasy theme to it, but had that same vibe that that I think all of these people going through their nineties nostalgia right now. Uh, might really like uh, dolls, just for that reason. Yeah, no, definitely, and um, you know, I, I, I just, I like the fact that the, you know, the the evil, the evil parents get trapped in dolls forever. Um, yeah, and and you don't feel bad for them. It's not like no. Time Bandits when the parents are dickheads, but you also realize the kids left alone at the end. Spoiler alert, but. Like, oh that's a depressing ending, whereas in <laughs> Dolls, it's actually good. And she ends up with sort of adopted. I guess the guy kind of adopts her. I don't know for sure. Yeah. It seems like he might. And then it ends with another couple getting trapped. Yeah. I could... It's like it's a, it's like an EC comic, but, but like, for kids. Like, those EC comics weren't really for kids, I suppose. And was this rated R? It was. And, huh. and I don't... I didn't take any notes on this. And don't quote me, even though I'm being recorded... But I think on the commentary or on one of the special features, they mention that Charles Band ad- made them add some gore to get the R rating. Mm. And that it wasn't necessarily originally rated R. And I really can only think of the eyeball scene as, I, I guess the one, one girl is attacked by dolls and it's a little, it's, it's frenzied, but it's not gory. Yeah, no, I mean, she gets dragged and she's screaming yeah. and stuff, but it's not... 
I was I was really expect because it's Stuart Gordon. I was expecting, right. oh my god, is her legs going to get chopped off and blood's going to be squirting everywhere? And no, no, which is fine. It's a it's a really nice change from from the other two films, and um, it's, it's also really interesting to learn, you know, especially when looking back at his career, because um, pretty much right. I don't know if it was right after this, I'm, but. Um, he he had a little he had his, he had an office at Disney for a while, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, he wrote. Not too long after this, he wrote and produced uh, "Honey, I Shrunk the Kids," which was crazy to learn. Um, it, but it fits. I mean, even though he didn't direct it, you, after you learn that fact, you go, "Oh yeah, that makes sense." I mean, it, it's a little it, Brian Uzna Uzna. I'm not sure how you say his name. It, he he's kind of like the more perverted version of Gordon because they kind of worked together and developed their styles alongside each other. So it's it's but but the two of them made are, are were going. I think he was going to direct it, but this that Disney wanted someone who didn't have the the horror movie name behind him or something like that. But you could see both uh, Yuzna and uh, Gordon in that movie and the sequel. Which isn't very good, but so he just came out with the story. He didn't actually write the screenplay. I think he. I thought he wrote the screenplay, but it must have been rewritten. Yeah, because because um, I remember reading that they had they had together written the the screenplay. Yeah, I thought someone, so. I thought I heard that on, on a podcast. I'm looking at uh, Wikipedia. I don't know how accurate. Um, it says he just has story credit, but it's screenplay, huh? But I. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that they wrote the. I wouldn't mind revisiting though. Honey I Shrunk the Kids. I. I liked it. I liked it fine yeah, when I when I saw it as a kid. It also feels kind of like a Joe Dante. Yeah, it's movie, Joe Johnson. It. It's funny because like I had. To yeah. Oh, it is Joe Johnston. Yeah, it's kind of Joe Dante. Light. I, Joe Dante. Joe Dante. Uh, parallel. I had uh, to correct a uh, another podcast for confusing Joe Johnston and Joe Dante once. Uh, yeah, Joe Johnston's the slightly less interesting yeah. Joe Dante who had a more successful long-term career, indeed indeed so yeah that's it's interesting that and you know and even tying back to an, another discovery that earlier this year was the fact that uh he also co-wrote the uh body snatchers movie that abel ferrara did so i was like wow Stuart right. gordon just keeps popping up all over the place for me that's just really interesting yeah but um there are there is a little bit of a stretch here um, even though I did ca- catch up with Pit and the Pendulum, did did you see Robot Jocks? Because I've yet I've yet to see it. Yeah, Robot Jocks isn't is another one that just came out uh, this July, I think it was on Blu-ray. I had already owned it. It was a ch- it was one of those movies that um I how old was I when this came out? Not, I was nine years old, and it actually got major television trailer play. I and I don't know how this happened that this. B movie from Full Moon that was shot in Europe um ended up somehow getting a major uh rollout with with TV spots and I very distinctly remember like people talk about nostalgia bombs watching the trailer for this movie when uh the hero gets up on the on the broken down robot and shouts I'm going to kick get in this robot and I'm going to kick your and then there's this deafening explosion because you can't say ass on TV <laughs> at the time. <laughs> um, and and it was like it's another children's movie, and it was very much designed that way. 
and it was Stuart Gordon had watched um apparently he was either a fan of anime or his kid was a fan of anime and he sat down with the producers and he said you know nobody's ever made a a movie like this um uh in live action and do we think we could do it and uh, you know it was full moon i think as technically empire which is proto full moon uh and uh they uh released it on thanksgiving weekend um and they assumed it was going to get just huge numbers and it flopped miserably um and but it's it's really charming it's another short it moves quick it's um got really charming uh stop motion special effects um the action scenes aren't bad i mean there's there's some ropey uh blue screen elements but they're not bad um uh jeffrey combs has a good cameo i think dolls is the first one we've talked about that didn't have jeffrey combs in it actually um jeffrey combs has a good cameo uh it's uh it's reasonably funny it's a cool idea because it's the it's it's that in the future there's no more war because all disputes are decided with robot jocks which are just guys in these giant robot suits they fight each other and so it's a cold war allegory too or not even allegory but it's a cold war story because um he's fighting the russian guy for alaska i believe it is they like like alaska's under you know and, and then it kind of turns into your typical um that's the thing that's the thing i was going to talk about the amount of things it has in common with um pacific rim are shocking that's what uh I, i'm just looking at the wikipedia now under later response i see that here listed i was like whoa okay like like he he loses a battle and kind of quits or he doesn't really even lose the battle, but he almost loses the battle and he quits and he kind of bums around town and has to be brought back. Hmm. Um, like, it, it basically, it's just missing the monsters. And then according to Stuart Gordon, he had a sequel planned where aliens were going to attack. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and he was kind of shocked that... But yeah, I mean, it has a lot... In, it, it, I guess the one thing Pacific Rim has that it doesn't is the idea that you need two people to control the robot. But, um... Otherwise, yeah, it's. I think it's a very enjoyable movie, um, and it's uh, serious enough that you can kind of laugh at it a little bit, but it mostly knows that it's silly, so uh, you can laugh with it too. I think um, that's. I think that's the thing I've realized as we've gone on here is that um, the differences between Toby Hooper and Stuart Gordon. I, I think Stuart Gordon's sense of humor just jives with me a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, I, I probably said the word shrill three times when I did Toby Hooper. Um, yeah. And I think that there's just something... In regards to Chainsaw Massacre 2, I'm guessing? Yes. <laughs> probably. Yeah, it's pretty shrill. So, I mean, whereas, like, um, I don't know, Stuart Gordon's, you know, when it's goofy and kind of obnoxious at times, I mean, it doesn't bother me so much because maybe I just find it charming. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, I mean, some something it's- like Robot Jock... Yeah, and and it, it's it's um, it's got like stuff like it's a good primer again for kids. It, they're not going to like it because the special effects are so dated, I suppose. But uh, it's like a good primer for uh, Robert Heinlein. It's got all this Starship Troopers, like the book, not the movie, stuff in there about about 
you know, all that weird fascist Robert Heinlein stuff going on, and they're genetically engineered soldiers, and there's this weird thing that they don't really establish very well where people don't read anymore in the future because everything's video. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, there's stuff going on. It's interesting sci-fi stuff going on. Well, um, well, what's interesting to me here, too, looking at Wikipedia, is that as a huge fan of the production behind Downward Spiral, it says, Tresner sampled and looped sounds from the film for one of his songs, which is one of my favorite Nine Inch Nails songs, The Becoming. So I'm curious now just to watch oh. the movie if I can spot those uh, sounds. Yeah. That's kind of cool. I'm, yeah, that's like listening to... Uh, be, grow, being a teenager listening to White Zombie albums and then growing up to watch obscure horror movies and every... Once in a while, just going, oh, yeah, holy shit, this uh, Brazilian horror movie, that noise is from that white zombie song. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, and it's weird that, like, when I was younger, I heard this song by Latour. It was like this ridiculous techno dance song called People Are Still Having Sex. And um, <laughs> in it, there's a, a sample that just goes, hello, lover over and over again hello lover and i'm like what is that and then of course it's uh, a evil dead yeah evil dead too yeah it's like oh yeah there. evil dead too yeah nice you did a you did a good impression i understood good. it I, I i've had time to perfect that um well and there's there's that ministry song uh psalm 69 that ends with a bunch of laughing and then some guy shouting stop it and cut to five years later watching Suspiria right, for the first right. time. And the, <laughs> and going, oh, some random guy shouting, stop it, is in a ministry song. It wasn't just ministry doing it. It's actual copyrighted material that they had to get the rights now, to. Now, that's an album I should listen to to help wake me up on the way to work. I was trying to think of that. I go. was trying to think of a list of albums I should listen to to wake me up in the morning. That's that's a good choice. Um, you, so, you told me to skip over Daughter... Yeah, I'll talk very quickly about that one. It was made for TV movie um, with... Uh, uh, it was made at the same time as the Toby Hooper made for TV movie that um, also stars... Uh, uh, see, names are escaping me now. It shouldn't. Anthony Perkins? That's the one. Anthony Perkins. Um, yeah, they were made around the same time. I don't know what channel they played on. Um it's it's well enough made. It's a vampire movie. Um, aesthetically, it's not particularly... I, I, I wrote a note here saying aesthetically dull, and that was before I watched a certain other movie. So, you know, now it's not looking so bad. Um, it has an interesting, good, pretty good plot about this sort of cabal of, uh, of vampires that, uh, that um, aren't really necessarily bad people in the beginning. It actually has a lot in common with the first Blade, where there's like this like group of vampires and they like some of them want to be more out there and other ones you know, like like want to be remain underground. Um and uh, M- uh Mia Sarah from uh Ferris Bueller is the lead. Oh okay. Um she's alright. Uh she and she goes to find her father who's supposedly dead but turns out to be Anthony Perkins and she's a half vampire so she's technically blade in that regard that like they want to get her power to uh walk in the daylight is going on but there's yeah there's there's it, it's interesting but not very good I guess is the way That's what it. I gathered. I would skip it. It's on it's on YouTube for free if anybody wants to see it. 
daughter. Not to be confused with Daughters of Darkness, which is a really good lesbian vampire movie. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I get those two confused. It's, much, it's older, from the 70s. Yeah, it's just Daughter of Darkness. Yeah. So the next one is very interesting because, I gosh, I remember seeing that cover... Um, in video stores and steering clear of it for some reason. Maybe it's just Lance Hendrickson. Maybe that's he just freaks me out. That uh, that little pose and yeah, that yeah. cover. It's a really really striking cover. Um, and it's uh, obviously based on the Edgar Allan Poe story, The Pit and the Pendulum, which um, another one I think you've been championing for a while. Um, I liked it. Yeah. Uh, I it's not in the upper tier, but I certainly I dug it quite a bit. Um, it's one that I was like, hmm, yeah, I could see why Stuart Gordon fans this one up because, uh, you know, obviously you have your Jeffrey Combs popping up. Uh, I'm, 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 yeah. He's hilarious. It's funny. I think it's one of the funnier movies. It's up there with Reanimator as far yeah, as. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's, it's got the sense of humor in its right place. I'm pretty impressed that uh, they snagged Oliver Reed, even if he's just, you know, on there for, for a short time. Yeah, and that, but he, he, yeah, and he gets walled up. It's kind of hilarious. Like, uh, you get all her reading your movie, and then and you very purposely kick him out of the movie very quickly. Um, and the bit with uh, uh, Jeffrey Combs ask, uh, asking ha- uh, how the torture was yeah. for the victim, <laughs> and telling her that they don't have time to torture her today; that they'll have to torture her <laughs> later. Um, oh, what? Who? Who plays the the witch? Um, should we? She's so good, and I can't remember her name either. Um, uh, Rona DeRici? Is that the one you're thinking? Yeah, I think I think that's right. And she eats a bunch of uh, gunpowder before she gets burned at the oh, stake. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that she explodes all over Oh, everybody. man, Sherilyn Fenn was originally supposed to play her? Oh, man, that would have been good. I think uh, I think that the, the one thing about the Pit and the Pendulum, and maybe I would also say Daughters of Darkness, and maybe even Robot Jocks, um, is at this point, Stuart Gordon movies start to have pretty boring protagonists. Yeah, yeah. Where the secondary characters become... Like, I, I guess in a certain way you could say that Lance Hendrickson is the lead in the Pit and the Pendulum, and he's great. He's acting in, like, a different movie than everybody else, and it's perfect because everybody is sort of like Jeffrey Combs is in a a really like basically Jeffrey Combs is in a in a um Monty Python movie. <laughs> um and Lance Hendrickson is in this dead fucking serious Clive Barker. Shakes- yeah, like Clive Barker by way of Shakespeare like this is the most serious and his voice he's got that growl <laughs> that just tears out of him. Um but then the the two the woman and the the guy they're they're bland. They're really bland people. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it, again, and also it's a surprisingly not very gory film. Uh, it's got its moments, but no, yeah. I think the goriest thing is the the rat getting all right gooped up. Yeah, but I um, think the production value is pretty strong. I mean the the period setting never came across as phony or TV ish, um, you know, and it's um, it, it's it looks good for it for what it wants to be, and I I, I was really impressed, and I think. Um, you know, Lance Hendrickson, you know, after coming, I don't know if this might have been, yeah, this, I think this was a couple years after something dreadful like the horror show, um, you know, finally gets to chew scenery in the best way possible here. I just wasn't, I wasn't too big on the overly happy ending. Not that I ever wanted everyone to die, yeah. but 
you know. I can't remember how the story ends. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things where it seems like in the spirit of Poe, I mean, I, yeah, that's what I was thinking, too, is like, I, it's one of those stories I probably read early on because I had like a big Al- Edgar Allan Poe collection at one point and just sort of went through it, binged through it at one point in time in my life, and I, I know I read it, but I don't clearly remember how the original story yeah. ended either. The 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 other the sixties adaptation, the Corman one ends happy too, but they're very different movies otherwise. Right. I love the whole sort of sort of uh Damocles thing <laughs> that they stick on a uh, uh in, for Hendrickson's character where he has the sword above his bed. Yeah. That uh if God decides to strike him down, if I'm doing anything wrong, God will strike me down kind of thing. Right. It's, it's more of a witch hunter movie, actually. It's, yeah. It has a lot in common with Witchfinder General, um, more, even more so. If you're going to say uh, there's one Vincent Price movie that is like Gordon's Pit and the Pendulum, it's actually uh, Witchfinder General even more than the Pit and the Pendulum, I, I would say. So, yeah, I mean, this it was, it was a nice surprise. It's something that I don't know why I put off for as long as I had. Um, but, um, yeah, and it's also an interesting tie-in. I mean, clearly... I know that this is something that I'm that Stuart Gordon has said time and time again that um, you know early on he wanted to have the same relationship with Lovecraft that Corman did with Poe, and that totally makes sense and it, it's it almost makes as much sense for for uh, Stuart Gordon to eventually tackle a Poe story mm-hmm. and then later on makes sense and it, it's it almost makes as much sense for for uh, Stuart Gordon to eventually tackle a Poe story. And then later on, in you know later on in his career, something oh man, I wish you and I could just go see right now is Stuart Gordon's play about Poe. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know that would. I almost went to L.A. To, because that and the Reanimator musical were playing at the same time. Oh. And I was like, oh, is it worth paying a ticket to L.A. and to see both of those in one night, one right after the other? Um. Actually, yeah, well, we can get that at the very end, but right. his his Poe episode of uh, Masters of Horror is, is his one of his best movies in a weird way. Yeah, I, I, sh- I should have rewatched that in time. I didn't get a chance. I, I, I probably will, at least within the month anyway. Yeah. They're all on Hulu. I don't know if you have Hulu, but they just added those to Hulu. Oh, really? So okay. Yeah. That's good to know. But, um, um, yeah. But the last thought on, on Pit and the Pendulum is that it's a good example of how um, Stuart Gordon filming all these movies in Europe, Spain, and Italy uh, via the Full Moon people, Charles Band's people, that he got a lot of um, of uh, out of out of using locations, actual European locations. He got a lot of bang for his buck that a lot of those other Full Moon directors just didn't achieve. Um, a lot of those movies look really cheap, and even though I, I'm guessing that the Gordon ones had slightly larger budgets than some of them, but it. He he achieves a lot with very little in the this period of his career, this sort of middle period, leading into the fortress, which fortress, I, fortress, which I, I really like. I mean, it's got huge flaws, but mm-hmm. in in spirit, it's one of those movies that you know I kind of want to embrace despite its um, imperfections. The main being Christopher Lambert is just not. An appealing a bland movies. male lead. It's like it exactly. starts to be. Um, it was originally uh, Schwarzenegger. Huh. Uh, 
vehicle. And that's how Gordon got the job because Schwarzenegger was a huge Reanimator fan because Schwarzenegger's body double is the giant guy in Reanimator. Oh my god! What is and this? so <laughs> he had he had seen Reanimator and was a really big fan, and he suggested Gordon as the director. Wow. Um. And weird, it would have been Kurtwood Smith and oh wait, no, Kurtwood. Yeah, Kurtwood Smith was in Total Recall, he, wasn't he? No, he was in RoboCop. Very close. <laughs> okay. Same yeah. same difference. Yeah, that's true. I'm getting my Verhoeven mixed up. But, um, yeah, no, I just, if it was a different lead, it'd be even stronger. And yeah. if you would subtract some of these, oh, these really, I don't know how you describe these lawnmower man dream sequences with these really. Those are weird. It's a cool concept, though. The yeah. idea that this prison is so, um, but just horrible to be in that you're not even allowed to have pleasant dreams right it's a really cool concept that, i love the concept it's and, and again a weird metaphysical stuff sure that that you know and that schwarzenegger did end up making a futuristic jailbreak movie it was a piece of crap called no escape that had nothing interesting it's it was taking place in the vague near future or something and there was nothing cool there's no sci-fi about it at all yeah, it has a has a little inception quality when you think about it with the invading yeah. dreams thing, um, but yeah, it's uh, it's 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 just um, the, the the execution of those dream sequences are horribly dated now, and mm-hmm. there I remember when and uh, not in a good way, not no, in a good way. No, there was there, a, there's such thing as good dated special effects, and those are not them. Correct. There was um, a, you know, when I was in like a high school film class, and we had. Um, we were editing our own films and we would ramp up the, the special effects. And we had this like switcher thing that had like a key chrome effect and a paint effect. And if you combine the key chrome effect and the paint effect, you would get these horrible, like, you know, um, psychedelic colors Mm -hmm. over the screen kind of a thing. And it totally just like reeks of lawnmower man and this kind of aesthetic that I just, it drives me bonkers when it happens and it's so disappointing because i pretty much like everything else surrounding it but the lead and those uh dream sequences i mean you know what can you say about kurtwood smith he's a Kurt great smith is really good in it too. yeah yeah like, and a real surprise but at the end what, yeah yeah it, yeah i mean i don't know it's sort of maybe shouldn't spoil it but kind of i don't know he, he's got this 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 gentle perversity about him he's, yeah it's the opposite of of uh clarence Bodiger. Exactly, um, mm-hmm. and it was uh, and and Jeffrey Combs is 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 he plays a very Jeffrey Combs esque character, but he's a little unrecognizable at first. Yeah, and, and <laughs> if, just the idea of him playing a nerdy hippie that just yeah. it fits. He's over the top. He says "man" like every third sentence, but it it's it works. And uh, Purdy Gordon, uh, Carolyn, his wife, does the robot voice, the computer voice. That's oh. perfect. He got to squeeze her in there. Um, I, th- I thought that honestly reminded me a lot of, uh, the first half of, um, Guardians of the Galaxy when I was watching it. Oh, so, interesting. And, and I was, honestly, you know, maybe between that hmm. and, uh, and, uh, Robot Jocks kind of feels like, uh, Gordon could, 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 <laughs> he's kind of being ripped off in these big budget movies and in a good way, and that maybe maybe Marvel should bring him on. He clearly, you know, he'd be a guy who play ball. Have him do one of these 
Well, I know. I think he should get some. I think he should get some residuals. I think he should get. Yeah, that too. I, I mean that that'd be only fair, so he can. Uh, Make some more movies. And, I mean, uh, he used to have an office at Disney. Disney owes them now. At least, like, let him, like, do some script doctoring or something. Yeah, no kidding. Get him some sort of job out of this. Because it's, I mean, and, and, and James Gunn is totally the type of guy who would have seen Fortress. Oh, it's It's yeah. not like Ridley Scott. He wouldn't have seen Fortress. But James Gunn, yeah, James Gunn could have seen Fortress. Yeah, Fortress is very charming. It's kind of funny, like, one of the reviews uh, in the New York Times says, it blends RoboCop, The Handmaid's Tale, and Brave New World. And I love that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's... that's, <laughs> Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, actually. Yeah, it's a good mix of those things. Um, you know, it kind of has a predictable ending, but it's not mm-hmm. entirely um, unsatisfying. I think, uh, you know, it's earned, but... Um, one thing, one yeah. thing I, I I had no because th- there's this act, this is, there's this character actor that I've enjoyed for quite a while, but my first exposure to him was in the movie One Eight Seven, and that's Clifton Collins Jr. who yes. has gone on, you know, he, this was his first movie. I yeah, I had no idea he was acting that young, um, and th- and yeah. then I see him in two Stuart Gordon movies. I'm like, whoa, yeah, Gordon. Almost, it wasn't his first, but it was close. Like base almost discovered by Stuart Gordon and he's kind of a name now he was he was he was at a on a roll for a while I think he was in the crank movies or something like that yeah yeah I mean you know he he, he kind of he is weirdly cast as like the pretty boy in Fortress it doesn't <laughs> quite work right right yeah it's, it's it wasn't a role I would expect to find him in because he just you know I don't want to typecast him as a gang member but like one eight no, one eight but- one eight seven was kind of like man he's so good in that movie even though the movie like is kind of like eh, it's kind of what you expect of that ilk but at yeah. the same time like he always stands out whenever i see him in something yeah he's yeah i'm trying to remember he was in a bunch of lionsgate productions in a row and i can't remember what they were now but yeah he he's he's had a pretty good career lately yeah um, yeah so i mean it's i think i think uh Gordon knows how to cast his supporting actors very strongly, and like uh, the Otis from Henry keeps showing up. Uh, Tom Towles, yeah, yeah, he keeps showing up, and you know I always like him. And God, when he is, he just plays the best pervert. I swear, yes. Like once he likes, you know, sticks out his tongue at Clifton Collins, I'm just like, yep, that's Otis. I'm always going to see that guy as Otis. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, it's 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 really. Uh, There's another roundabout connection to Guardians of the Galaxy because because um, guy who plays Henry's in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, Michael Rooker. It's a conspiracy. This yeah, is, Michael this Rooker's is getting in, creepy, man. Yeah, we've 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 opened a whole Pandora's box. Maybe we should confront James Gunn. And he's always on Twitter, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's tag him in the podcast, and I'm sure he'll listen to the whole thing. It you know, it seems likely. Well, Stuart Gordon has appeared on many podcasts, so I'm 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 inclined to at some point, maybe maybe next year, to ask him to pop on here and say hello, because it it would be the first time I think that a director that I've that we've I've co- covered. Well, no, actually, that's yeah. no, never mind. Alex Ross Perry. What am I talking about? <laughs> that oh, just happened yes. recently where um yeah i'd do an episode on a director and then i get an interview which was really cool but yeah fortress is one of those kind of like under the radar um there there's movies. a sequel i've 
saw part of once. I've never seen the whole thing. He didn't do it though. Oh. But it it brings back uh the lead and I think his wife's in it again. And, oh, and speaking of the wife, this is a certain thing that happens. And I know you said something at the beginning about how you think and I agree with you that Gordon treats the damsel in distress and this and nudity and all that stuff he treats it well and it fits the movies but when you watch them all in a row like i did there's a certain point where you realize there is a sexual assault in almost every single Stuart gordon movie and 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 in a way fortress was like this version where there's never actually a sexual assault yeah you don't actually yeah you don't see it right but there's this even more perverse implied sexual assault like like mind assault because the guy you know again not spoil he can't anyway it made me realize that he has all these movies where sexual assault where the woman is still often with the exception of reanimator in control of her own uh station in the sexual assault she's usually the one who gets herself out of it or and 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 it's it's quote unquote problematic but it's only really noticeable if you watch them all in a row and you realize that even the like I guess Robot Jocks is probably the uh, Robot Jocks and Daughter of Darkness did not have one maybe Dolls didn't either yeah I guess Dolls no I don't think Dolls Dolls has Dolls attacking a girl that's different right but but there is like at a certain point and that leads into the next movie. Which I have yet to see. I couldn't find it. It was really hard to find. Um, Castle Freak. Yeah. Is it, is it out on Blu-ray at all? It's on DVD. I don't think it's on Blu-ray. Okay. Um, yeah. It, it was, was on. It's on a streaming service, too, but it, it was like the full moon one that you have to spend extra money to get, which I would love to get their, their full moon channel, but they don't. I have an Apple TV, and it's not available on Apple TV, so I'm not going to spend money on it. Right, just well, to watch it on a it's one screen. I will definitely be checking out, obviously because of the cast and the director. But yeah, it's I don't like it. It's the first one I don't just daughter Daughter of Darkness isn't great, but I still like a lot. Of, I don't like Castle Freak. I'm surprised. Uh, I've heard of a couple of defenders on it, on a, but then again, I've heard it of looks defenders great. on something else. So it's another one of those full moon movies that he gets every ounce of production value out of the castle. Um, and it's got cool stuff. Uh, it's got a comic book feel that's literal because, um, no, wait, I'm thinking of another movie now. There's a different movie that was made by Full, Full Moon called uh, Cellar Dweller that was not directed by Stuart Gordon that has uh, Jeffrey Combs as a comic book artist whose uh, drawing comes to life and kills people. So this one has uh, Jeffrey Combs as a a man who is going through a very difficult, like this family moves to a castle and they're going through a near divorce situation where he's not taking care of the daughter like well enough. And there is, um, at one point he goes and gets a hooker and it doesn't work out so well. And the whole time there's this, uh, kind of feral man that no, that, that has been forgotten that nobody that is currently in the castle knows is there who's following them around and he uh the finds the 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 prostitute and and it's really oh no not again that's actually the one sexual assault scene in a bruce or sorry a Stuart gordon movie that that might be considered offensive um 
instead of just silly or uh, fitting, you know, like tasteful. And it's uh, the, but the bigger problem with Castle Freak is that it's filler. Um, it's full of just scenes where nothing really happens. Um, and I think that it would have made and 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 Full Moon was was developing, and I don't know if they ever ended up finishing. They were going to do anthologies, and I think Castle Freak would have worked very nicely as a 30-minute episode in an anthology. Um, even with the weird, awkward sexual assault scene, you could you could even leave that in, I suppose. But it, it would have worked better cut down to the bone. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, it could have been a Master of Horror yeah. entry of sorts. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the, the premise doesn't grab me, but I'm like, yeah, but it's, it's, it's the same cast. You it's the same and, cast, and it's vaguely based on... Uh, uh, the freak's makeup is really good. I remember that. Like the the weird, like exposed teeth. That stuff's good. Um, yeah, the cover is really. That's yeah. I guess the cover does kind of give away what the monster looks like. He has that's, a he has a sort of rag on his head most of the movie. That's kind of a bummer though to give away the monster on the cover. You know, I mean, I mean, I'm sure that happens more often than mo- directors would like, and they have no yeah. control over that, but. Yeah, you know, I think it's more of a, a shocker to actually see it in the moment when you're watching the movie as opposed to seeing it on the cover. But yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's something I'll get to at some point. Yeah, don't, it, I, I, I think it really is the first Stuart. Uh, if we're watching them in order and not including Bleacher Bums, which I didn't watch either, it's the first one I don't really like. I would say. What are your thoughts on Space Truckers? Because that's another one I haven't seen. But... I had never seen it, so that one was new to me, and okay. I I liked it. It's um, it's another one that feels it's family friendly, but it's it's a PG thirteen movie, so it's got like uh, it's got a lot of PG thirteen sex co- jokes. Oh, okay. Um, the cast is shockingly high end. Dennis um, Hopper. Yeah, Dennis Hopper's good too. Uh. It's uh, you know one thing I made a I made a note for myself here uh, uh, that people who watch the show Cowboy Bebop the animated series the Japanese animated series might want to check it out even if they don't like the movie just to notice how many aesthetic and uh, technological bits cross over between the two the movie and the series it's got surprisingly it's got like space billboards um it's got uh like sort of tracks that you follow through hyperspace um and it's got this this purposely anachronistic feel to it where everything's 50s style whereas i would say that cowboy bebop's more 70s and 30s style but it it, it has surprisingly a lot in common with that and I have no idea if okay. that's on purpose or not. Um, the music was really <laughs> bad. I remember that. Um, there's cool little little things like um, uh, the the Dennis Hopper character is moving space pigs. That's his 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 space pigs space truck. And, and there are these giant like <laughs> fat Muppet looking pig things. And those are really fun. And uh, there's a bit where they have to escape. Uh, it's the government, but I, it's like it's a union movie. It's like a pro-union oh, movie, wow. sort of. And they have to escape at one point. And he goes into the women's bathroom, and there's an old woman screaming, "Get out! Get out!" 
and uh, the two people he's with are like, we have to get out of here. And he says, no, hold on a second. And he grabs the woman's face and opens it up. And she's, she has a, um, like a console inside. And this is like his secret escape plan is he has a robot. That's an old lady who screams, get out, get out. But that's actually through her toilet is the escape out of the building. <laughs> um, this sounds ridiculous. And there's a, a Charles dance plays a, a, guy who's invented these like unstoppable cyber warriors i guess is what they are <laughs> um at the beginning you think he's dead it turns out he's not and now he's some sort of space pirate but he's rebuilt most of his body as a robot and uh debbie Mazer is sort of like the again this woman who is the like uh, at the attention of all the men in the story uh steven dorf plays the younger guy who is clearly the one who's better for her uh, Dennis Hopper uh, makes her promise she'll marry him if he if she comes along with them, and she at one point they're chained up and she says to the Charles Dance robot, uh, "I'll let you have sex with me if you let us go." And and so again, there's oh, this idea of rape in there, but it's her terms. <laughs> And so she goes to the room and he has to literally wind himself up and it's PG 13. So it's all below frame, but there's some sort of glowing light and like whirring sound. And then it, he's like, are you ready for this? And then it breaks down and he has to like go over and try to do it again. Okay. Stuart um, Gordon is a perv too. He, I mean, but, but it, it's, it's, it's less that I am not really offended by it. I know. It's just, it's just strange that it all adds up. Uh, Barbara Crampton has a small role. She, um, it looks like she's really high in the in the like they're acting like she's a lead, but she's not. Well, in, um, in the poster, she's not listed high up. Okay, but uh, good. Yeah, weird. Uh, yeah, Stephen Dorff is actually uh, pretty endearing. I I tend to find him annoying. This is only a couple years before Blade, too. Um, and and Debbie Mazer is really good. Um. It's it's a it's a it's a worthwhile movie that has tonal problems, um, and some of it comes from I, I'm pretty sure that they're improving, um, and I think that the improv sometimes really works and sometimes it really doesn't. Uh, I think people who like Tank Girl would like it. Oh, it's got okay. Kind of a Tank Girl vibe. Well, then, it's not quite as wily as Tank Girl, but it's got kind of a Tank. Well, girl. I, I'm I, I I really like Tank Girl quite a bit. Yeah. Um. So what you're telling me is get drunk and do a double feature of robot jocks and space truckers sometime. Yeah, it yeah. would work. I mean, they're 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 surprisingly different but also the same. It's it's yeah, it would make an interesting double feature on, on an appropriate mindset. Speaking of drunk, um I I watched a movie that made me feel drunk and like I was on cocaine. Um, and it's called The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit. This movie, I actually watched it just last night. This movie is insane. I loved it. I, I really liked it. I was shocked I, at how much I liked I it. I'm watching this kind of baffled, kind of um, shaking my head in disbelief, but also really charmed by it because of the cast. I mean, the cast kind of goes for broke. It's, it's kind of a cartoon um, you know, it, it's, it's almost cause like one of my, um, one of my friends on Facebook was like, yeah, I, I saw this and I loved it. And we kind of have the same sense of humor. And he was also on for the David Wayne episode. And, 
there are people who find you know uh, David Wayne's sense of humor uh, grating and shrill and manic at times. Um, so when I when I was watching this, I'm like, you know what? I don't care. I'm laughing. I'm smiling. I'm enjoying this. It's kind of a manic, goofy, ridiculous movie about a wonderful ice cream colored suit. That, uh, yeah, it's colored. You should specify it's the color of vanilla ice cream. Uh, yeah, it's not made out of ice cream. <laughs> I know. I wish it was, um, but yeah, that would that would have been even stranger. But there, there's the, at one point Edward James almost after um, who's unrecognizable until then. Yes, exactly. I couldn't have told you it was Edward James almost <laughs> when when he's when he's getting a when he's getting a bath. There's like a throwaway off-screen line because they, they also want to shave him. And you can hear him going, take the razor to my throat, it'll be faster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's full of stuff like that. Yeah. At the same time, it's also family friendly. Even though it has this really dark humor, it's another one I would be comfortable showing to a kid. Um, oh, absolutely. Yeah. With- and, and it feels like those made-for-TV Disney movies from the like mid-'90s era. Like It feels like something I would have been shown... Um, in Spanish class to the point where I was trying to remember if I had been, I realized it came out in 98. I was already graduated by then, but it feels like something that my Spanish teacher would have shown us. Um, yeah, most definitely. Like I had a Spanish teacher who showed us born in East LA and just anything about Mexican culture that he thought was oh my funny. God born in East LA. <laughs> I forgot um, all about that. And, and well, but, and, and it really, it has the, even though it's a very LA movie, like, full of la landmarks it has this thing that that like from i grew up in southern arizona and it has the this booming mexican-american culture thing that that is really um it it gets to me like the opening credits which are sort of this mariachi song oh, about the wonderful life cream I, and it's it's animated sand yeah and that those credits alone were enough to make me happy like the rest of the movie could have sucked and I would have been happy. I know, right? Like the the, the <laughs> fact that you know it's the, the, she sings the title of the song at the very end of the credits made me happy. Like, aw, this is just going to be a really sweet movie. I like it more than the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I mean, it, it's, again, the cast is just perfect. Like everybody in in their roles, do you know they do what they do, and it's it's so much fun to watch Joe Mantegna do this kind of silly. comedy. Yeah, do yeah. Re- really silly over-the-top kind of silly and um everything's almost too he he used to be he hasn't done comedy in a long time yeah yeah most definitely uh, that one thing i noticed is almost the entire cast is having currently uh very uh a popular they were popular on television because joe Mon- uh, mantanga is on criminal minds for years now um Edward James almost had Battlestar Galactica and Dexter, and then he was on Angels, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. for a while. Um, uh, uh, S.I. Morales, who was the singing guy, whose scene is my favorite, where he sings oh, to the girls. Oh, yeah, that with, is so that good. That was my favorite scene in the whole movie. I just remember him as the brother from La Bamba, too, so that was cool. Yeah, and the bro- but he's, on, he was, um, he's also on Criminal Minds, apparently. I didn't know that. And he was the president on the HBO series The Brink that just ended. Really? Yeah. I should see that um, show. I've heard mixed things, but I'm curious. It it, it was it, you talk about shrill. It's a little shrill, but I enjoyed it. Okay, all right. okay. Um, and Gregory Sierra was famous for TV at the time. It's almost the yeah. last thing he did. 
But he was on. Yeah, um, he was the only one I wasn't as familiar with. But yeah, he was on stuff like Sanford and Son. I think. Uh, uh more sixty stuff. It's a fascinating oh. outlier in his in in his filmography. It, it sort of indicates like, uh, you know, Gordon could have done some really wacky, you know, slapstick comedies here and there. And this isn't like necessarily slapsticky, but it's just. It's a little the the bit with <laughs> the end where they finally give the soup to the dirty guy played by well, James Olmos. Yeah, and they're oh, shout, the they sh- they follow him and they give him this whole list of rules of things he can't do with the soup because he's <laughs> dirty. And they follow him across the streets of the bar, and there's that scene where they see him dancing, and we see his arm go up, and he's he's holding red wine. <laughs> he has a taco. <laughs> he's smoking a cigar. <laughs> he's gonna get a lap dance from the fat woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It, it, it was a, apparently it's based on a play that he's done before. Yeah, uh, by Ray Bradbury. By Ray Bradbury. I kept waiting for a Ray Bradbury thing to happen. I know. Like, like it turns out this is a hologram. No, not it was not. In fact, that's what it seems like it's most famous for is being a weird Ray Bradbury kind of one-off thing. And I love the slow motion fight so much. Yes, hit me instead. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I laughed twice at that same I know, joke. Exactly. It's me uh, instead. It is so wacky and great. Um, it's it could use a real release. Yeah, it totally could. It totally could. I. Um, it's never been released on anything but VHS, and that was '98. VHS was already on its way out back. Then. It's only been on VHS. Wow. Yeah, it's never been as far, unless it was foreign. But as far as I know, it's never had anything else. Well, everybody, go to Amazon Instant Video or iTunes. And treat yourself to the wonderful ice cream suit. <laughs> it is so yeah. worth your time. Uh, I mean, again, sense of humor, subjective. People might find this one of the most annoying things I've ever seen, but I... It's, it's got a lot of mugging. Yes. But it's, it's quality mugging. Yes, and so um, Stuart Gordon went back to H.P. Lovecraft for a film that I've yet to see as well. Really quickly, can you touch on Dagon? Um, Dagon is one I remembered liking and then I rewatched and I didn't like it very much. Um, yeah, it's one, it's, it's interesting too. Cause it's one that he wishes more people would have paid attention to that. He kind of stands by. Um, it had been in development forever. Apparently. Yeah. It was supposed to be his second movie, I guess. Um, it has, it, it's the first of his movies that looks untheatrical. It looks like it was shot on digital video, even though it was, I looked it up and it said 35 millimeter. It, it, it looks like digital video. It has this handheld quality that's kind of annoying. Um, the CG is distracting, and I try I, I try to pride myself on not being bothered by, by bad special effects, just because I watch so many movies with bad special effects. But they're they're genuinely distracting in this movie. Um. There's a really great flashback sequence uh, that tells the story of how this town became a cult of... Uh, it's actually not based on Dagon. It's based on um, the shadow over Innsmouth. Innsmouth? Innsmouth? I don't know if you want to pronounce it which way. Um, there's a great flashback that I wish was the entire movie. In fact, you could take that flashback, cut down Castle Freak, stick them both in a movie with uh, a cut-down version of... Uh, Dreams in the Witch House, his first uh, Masters of Horror, and you could have a really solid Lovecraft anthology, I think. I, I'm going to get Stuart Gordon on the show 
and uh, suggest that. Well, I don't want to, to hear that I, I, I don't like his <laughs> favorite kidding. movie. I mean, that sucks, but no, I don't like it. Very, it, it there's um, there's interesting ideas. Uh, the, the, the lead is basically Woody Allen meets Harold Lloyd. Um, he's incredibly whiny and nebbish about everything. It's sometimes really annoying. Like, it's interesting because at the beginning of the movie, it's it's almost blindingly annoying to the point where you want him to die. But he does sort of grow on you as the movie goes on, which is the opposite of usually what that kind of character is like. Um, there's <laughs> there's a funny bit where uh, he's trapped in a in a a bathroom, I think it is, and all the crazy fish people are beating on the door, and he to to deal with the problem, he kind of whimpers, "Can I help you?" You know, and it kind of like this is going to solve the problem of the people he knows are trying to murder him. Um, <laughs> I thought you were going to be it, say it's gonna, another old lady going, "Get, get out, get out!" Yeah. <laughs> um, oh man. It, it, after after a certain point, it's just him running away from monsters for quite a bit of the movie, and it's not. It's in the rain, which is, I guess, seems like a shorthand for atmosphere, but it doesn't really have that atmosphere uh that kind of bugs me when people is even cheaper movies have when filmmakers sort of substitute rain for atmosphere god yeah. the ending of the equalizer with denzel has that like yeah a, a home depot yeah. or something <laughs> yeah i remember yeah uh slow motion rain gotta love it yeah it's uh it's uh there's a really good um scene they skin people they f- they flay people mm. um uh, my girlfriend just handed me a note saying that the rain is keeping the fish people wet. That is why it's raining. Bits, perhaps, <laughs> I suppose. Um, she hands you notes <laughs> like that all the time, even when you're not podcasting. Yeah, no, she doesn't speak aloud. She just hands me notes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the the makeups are cool. The the fish people makeups, and uh, uh, there's like a there's like a, a mermaid woman. Uh, there's, there's the, the story ends with, it turns out this guy is actually the long lost child of the king fish person. It, it's got a lot of potential. Um, and they, yeah, they flay people and there's a really upsetting scene where they flay, uh, they skin a, um, homeless kind of town drunk. Who's the only person who hasn't become a fish person. Uh, it's really well done. And the fact that it's really disturbing, uh, I yeah I wish I wish I liked it more but I think it needs like a spit polish or something. The funnily enough, Roger Corman's The Haunted Palace is basically the exact same story, oh. even though it's called uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Haunted Palace. It's really based on Shadow Over Innsmouth as well, hmm. um, and has a similar ending. Which it, it's a better movie too. I hadn't seen Haunted Palace until a couple years, or maybe even just last year. <clears throat> Yeah, it's disappointing, but moving on. <laughs> Speaking of, I wish I liked it more. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start off a little bit here because, uh, again, you know, for, for when we go when we go down, you know, the list for a director, I do tend to you know click on the Wikipedia page just to have some extra notes nearby or to see if there's anything I missed. For this next film, King of the Ants. Under reception, it says Rotten Tomatoes reports a rare one hundred percent of nine critics gave the film a nine. Posi- yeah, gave the film Not a, a positive uh, review. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, most of the reviews for this have been great. Uh, someone from Film Threat said it's his best film since Reanimator. Um, Which is insane. Uh, Just- yeah. You know, and I'm going to say it. I'm going to say that um, a podcast I quite enjoy, The Movie Crypt, um, is hosted by uh, the director of Hatchet and the director of Wrong Turn 2. Um, it's a it's a pretty good interview podcast. I, I I enjoy it. And when they had Stuart Gordon on, they went on and on about King of the Ants and saying it. This I think this is my favorite movie of yours. I think this is my favorite movie of yours. I was like, oh my god, okay. There's a Stuart Gordon movie that I've not seen that apparently is better than Reanimator. That's exactly what they're saying to me right now in this moment. Okay, <laughs> so I'm running home, excited. And I put this on. I'm like, okay, I, you know, I just glanced through the synopsis, of course, and I go, okay, maybe this is like in an Edmund Stuck vein because that's kind of where he heads later down in his in his career, in a more psychological thriller kind of vein, less about the horror and more about character studies and stuff. That's fine. Um, it starts out okay, I guess, but <laughs> once Daniel Baldwin shows up, I'm like, oh, oh we're in trouble. Um, we, we have kind of like, I guess a mafioso type here, um, offering, you know, this lead character, um, Chris played by Chris McKenna money to kill somebody and it just gets, it gets crazy and it gets, it, 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 it's like a really bad Tarantino knockoff, like you said, yeah, and it's it's not the production values are very piss poor and yeah. it's not shot very excitingly. I mean, there's some like, there's definitely moments from like, okay, this is a Stuart Gordon movie because of the dream sequences or like the hallucinations that he's having while he's in captivity. I was like, okay, there's some Stuart Gordon right there. Um, that's some really disturbing, crazy, weird shit. But for the most part, I was left pretty cold. I didn't entirely hate it just because, I mean, there is some catharsis that takes place when you know he gets his revenge there's some gory there's a really good gory um kill obviously when he he does follow through on his plan um and he kills uh what's his name ray or ron livingston Mm -hmm. in his home that's kind of jarring um you know so there's some like history of violence type violence in the film that kind of uh you know affected me but I honestly could care less about this lead character, especially the second half of this movie, which felt like a chore. This is this felt like the longest Stuart Gordon movie to me. It see, I I felt like reading all these positive reviews and watching it, I felt like I've never been so out of touch with other people's opinions in my entire life because I thought it was just horrible from beginning to end, and it looked awful. It looked like just I the cheapest. Like it looked like a college student's film but not even a graduate student like i would agree like the thing that like the first year students threw together and were really proud of you know and and it's yeah it's got all these weird bad tarantinoisms to it um it, it's just it's the only ugly Stuart gordon movie i've ever seen it's ugly and and it's got these stupid like um quick edit things yeah. and 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 they all come across as a like the that older filmmaker trying to be relevant and missing the point and actually becoming 
less relevant in the process. Like you saw Requiem for a Dream and decided, yeah. yeah. And and it's like it's like no, that's not your thing. It, it didn't. It doesn't work. You're not understanding why it. it I would have never, ever in a million years guessed it was a Stuart Gordon movie. Um, at a certain point, like, yeah, they take the guy. The, the It's based on a novel that apparently George Went liked enough to ask Gordon to make it. Yeah, um, and the, the novelist adapted into a screenplay. And the, the, the central idea, the one original thing about this wildly unoriginal story is the idea that um, he has... He has murdered someone, is not getting paid, is told to leave town, afraid he's going to get killed. He hands off all the proof to somebody and tells them, if you kill me, the truth will come out. So instead of killing him, they try to beat him brain dead, which is actually sort of, kind of, a shocking idea that I, at a certain, I thought that maybe this was going to be a really offensive movie about a a brain damaged kind of neanderthal acting guy running around murdering people and though that would not be a great movie that would have at least been a movie i hadn't seen before i hadn't seen i wouldn't have seen gangster movie turns into uh jason Voorhees movie yeah when he when he goes after the the uh the widow i was like oh my god and it doesn't he 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 gets fixed yeah, they don't beat beat him brain dead. He gets fixed, and then his life falls apart, and then he gets his revenge. And I didn't think it was cathartic. I thought it was really by the numbers. I wasn't. Uh, I liked George Wentz's severed head. That was kind of neat, I guess. <laughs> but the, the other thing was is that the whole crux of the idea that they're going to beat him brain dead and that they're keeping him alive. There's several points during the beating that goes over a series of days where they do something to make sure to keep him alive. What's the difference between beating someone until they don't remember where they've hidden something and just killing them? Like, if he's hidden it with another person and never shows back up again because he's so brain dead he doesn't remember, the exact same thing is yeah. going to happen. It didn't even make sense that on that That doesn't make sense. No. No, you're right. You're absolutely it, right. I mean, I guess, like... I feel I, like I'm really forgiving of, of stupid storylines. <laughs> this is... Like, uh, it, it, especially if he would have become Neanderthal Killer Man. I probably would have been a lot more forgiving. Nobody discovers he's an ant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm just an ant trying to kill people. I mean, yeah. this is what I do. I, guess I kept them waiting for something to happen that was interesting. Yeah, and like, I mean, you know, the, the two podcasts I listened to, you know, they, they, they even said this this lead character this this actor was so great too i was like really he was all right eh. i could see him being good in other things yeah yeah i yeah, could yeah. believe that he's a good actor sure but um you know george went nah and god daniel baldwin of all people he's awful 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 we should make it clear that we're not talking about our friend daniel baldwin <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, no. We're talking about the Baldwin brother, Alex. Uh, what, you know what? Brother? I bet Patrick's um, going to edit our little sentence out, or my sentence out of me, saying Daniel Baldwin's just awful, and sending yeah. it to him, and we're yeah. going to be in deep trouble. Okay. Yeah. You know, King of the Ants is not worth seeing, people. Um, nope. I, it's on Hulu, if you're curious, but on top of everything else, the Hulu uh, stream is really really pixelated <laughs> but something like, yeah yeah i don't know it, it, 
I was really shocked. I mean, the, uh, the I, I think I read at some point that he had conflicts with the studio distributors or something, and it's clear that he did not get the the, the financial backing he wanted, and yeah. the the quality of this movie in terms of the look is really ugly. So I'm I'm in agreement with you there. It's just. Maybe it's, I'm it, being too forgiving. Like the more we talk about the, unlike the other <laughs> movies we earlier, I, on. I, you know, I slept on it. I made myself notes. I slept on it. I woke up the next morning, and that's when I realized I hated it. Yeah, um, it's kind of a companion piece to George Romero's Bruiser, which oh. is another bad movie about um, revenge. I haven't but seen Bruiser that. has a interesting concept behind it, and hmm. doesn't look like it was shot in someone's backyard hmm. with like a camcorder. Like I. I don't get it. I don't get how people thought this was a good movie. It does not make sense to me. Yeah, I I, I concur. And you know, you hate King of the Ants as much, I think, as Patrick hates Edmund. Um, yeah, which I didn't see. The, I didn't see Edmund yet. So you're you're on. It's it's kind of funny, like because I mean, I I guess I I guess I do hate I I do hate King of the Ants, but uh, Edmund, like both both of these movies, you know, I, they kind of. You know, you get a strong reaction from either way. Like, I guess some people can love both of these movies. But oddly enough, like, I'm really just kind of like two, two and a half star on both of them because um, I just don't feel strongly about either of them. But Edmund is just at least a fascinating mess. Um, And I've heard Stuart Gordon go on record as saying that it's essentially just a midlife crisis tale from David Mamet's perspective filtered through Stuart Gordon's incredibly bleak vision of humanity. <laughs> um, but the problem I have with this is the, you know, I'm, I'm not going to give too much away, but there's, there's a kind of a quote unquote happy ending. And in my mind, the tones don't mesh well at all. Once the third act sort of comes along and I'm confused by what the film or what Mammoth is trying to get across to its audience. If you're going to go full-on bleak, then just don't pussy out. I mean, at the end, giving mm. the lead character like some redemptive acceptance, um, you know, is just kind of a cop-out for some reason. Like, I mean, it's it's strange, too, coming from Gordon. I mean, in, in, some, in some regards, like, I think he's kind of a, you know... He comes across as a very gentle person and very caring, and he, he he clearly is in touch with humanity, but he loves portraying inhumanity um, at its bleak, at its most bleakest, and that definitely happens throughout Edmund. But it's just the way it ends; it's like, oh, let's just give this guy some peace of mind, and that kind of bugs the shit out of me because this guy doesn't deserve peace of mind. Um, right. He is a horrible, horrible, horrible human being. And I could see why people are completely turned off by spending, you know, even just 20 minutes with this horrible, horrible human being. Um, And that, like I mentioned when I last talked with Patrick in our bonus episode, is that the theater experience I had with William H. Macy in attendance um, was so intense with, you know, a couple of uh, people asking what what is the intent behind this movie and why would you make this movie? It's so, it's so dark. It's so brutal. It's, it's just, it, you know, it says these horrible things about women and gays and and blacks. And, you know, there's just no 
you know, need to put this out into the world. And I think Patrick's reaction was not unlike that because there's some hate speech in this movie that is said with such strong conviction that you really do wonder what Mamet really believes. I mean, I don't think, Mm -hmm. I think he's really genuinely trying to portray a hateful character and he's not a hateful person. At least that's what I want to believe. But, um, you know, I can't deny the power of, you know, Mamet's as Mamet's one of my favorite screenwriters of all time, one of my favorite writers of all time. So there are moments in Edmund when dialogue is spoken, especially through like at one point Joe Mantegna shows up. Um, there's a really great exchange between William H. Macy and Julia Stiles um, in her apartment. That is the exact kind of stuff I love from Mamet. It is go for broke inhumanity spilling out. But I disagree with the philosophy of the central character. Um, the nature of this movie is not pleasant. The ending is kind of a head-scratcher in not a really interesting way. It doesn't sit well with me. It's a puzzle that's just not worth piecing together in the end for me. Um, I it's wish- not like, having not seen it, it's not like Taxi Driver where the yeah. guy gets what he wants in the end, but the audience is aware that... Uh, it's not a happy ending. It's not like one of those situations. No, no, yeah. it's it's not. It's it's really awkward to me. I mean, mm-hmm. and plus, not to mention, there's some aging makeup too that's really distracting <laughs> for William H Macy at the end. That's really silly. Um, that it's it's hard to take seriously. But there are some really strong moments where you go, okay, here's David Mamet, here's Stuart Gordon. Look at them go. So it's like there are individual scenes that I can completely get behind, but as a as a whole, no, it's it's not a good film as a whole at all. And it's one of those things too where I would love to sit down with Stuart Gordon over coffee and sort of hash out this movie, but at the same time, it's also like David Mamet's baby. This is something mm-hmm. that he constructed like in 1982, put out put out as a play into the world. And, you know, if I had a time machine, I'd love to go back and see what audiences would react to this at that time, too. But it's yeah. um, it's a provocative film that I wish, you know, really, um, really sat well with me because this is, it, you know, it's I even sort of compared it to like, this could be David Mamet's Fight Club if it was if it had been done right. And I still feel that way. It's just not done right, <laughs> in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but I think they, you, I think you should see it at some point because I'd love to get your take. The the one thing that almost came out of that out of Edmund was that there was talk for a while that um, they were going to make a four three animator movie uh, starring Mamet as basically George Bush, and the idea being that George Bush dies and they go and get the reanimator to. Uh, bring him back so that they can they can continue going the course or whatever um oh my god but it never happened and it obviously would be totally irrelevant now yeah but that would this would have come out in the middle of (laughs) all of the george bush phenomenon you know yeah and uh, but it didn't happen yeah i know that's sad i mean i I doubt i doubt mamet would have written it i don't remember who was supposed to write it but it is interesting to see william h macy working with Stuart Gordon at all in this yeah. context with, I mean, obviously Mamet and Macy go way back as, you know, as, you know, Mantegna does too. But, um, um, really quickly, I'll just, I'll just, 
you know, also bring up one of my favorite Stuart Gordon movies, and then you know we can sort of end on the Masters of Horror stuff. Mm-hmm. Have Have you seen Stuck? No, I didn't see Stuck, Edmund, or Bleacher Bums. Those are the ones I did not get to. Stuck is really one of my favorites. It's um, okay. I think the fact that it's based on a true story adds some credence. It adds some level of like sick you know just kind of like sick twisted nature to the world that only Stuart Gordon could capture and you know the fact that like it's one of those things where you you sit and you watch it almost like compliance did you see compliance uh the one about the fast food worker yeah yes i did yeah that that's something where you know if you hadn't known it was a true story you would wouldn't believe Not, it yeah 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 stuck is almost like that and as you're watching it, you kind of go, "My God, can some can somebody be this horrible? And could somebody really sink to this level? And can somebody, you know, endure what this, you know, what Stephen Ray endures in this film? But it's all about a man hit by a car who is then stuck in the windshield while the driver tries to forget her crime and basically leaves him to die. And it's based on a true story, so it." It's crazy. Um, it has pitch black humor, of course. Uh, it's, but I will say this: in you know, in the same way that you know, we mentioned, you know, uh, King of the Ants not being the best looking movie. This is shot on a very low budget. That you know, rewatching it recently, especially the way it opens, I was like, you know, this this looks like it could have been made for TV with the opening credits and everything. Um, I mean, I don't know if I felt that way seeing it at the music box. Um, but at the same time, I was like, wow, this isn't, you know, this doesn't look like it was, it doesn't look like it's shot in the way that Edmund was shot. Edmund has a lot of color and nuance um, in the cinematography. Stuck really isn't. It's plain. It's very plain. Mm-hmm. But I think that it serves the story. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's, it's the, the movie as a whole is incredibly effective and consistent, unlike Edmund. Stephen, mm-hmm. Stephen Ray from The Crying Game creates a character that you immediately feel sorry for because he's going through some really tough times, going to the unemployment office, uh, struggling to make ends meet. And Mina Savari plays uh, a nurse. And, you know, Mina Savari is somebody I've never really cared for, but she possesses this weird, innocent demeanor that's kind of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, kind of eerie in some way. I can't put my finger on it, but here she plays a despicable character in a way that she never has before and does it so incredibly well with conviction. And, and, you know, I, I later find out like she is a huge horror fan and reanimator is one of her favorite movies. And for her working with Stuart Gordon is like working with Tarantino. Mm-hmm. So like she wanted to put all her all into this, into this role. There are really some nail biting sequences in this movie involving Stephen Ray trying to escape from Mina Savari that, I mean, it's every time I see it, I'm just like, dear God. And I know what the outcome is. I'm still really invested in the moment. It's a really a thesis statement about how people are very selfish and very afraid these days um, about the, about what's going to happen to them if they make a mistake, um, if they do something horrendous in their lives. It, this movie encapsulate, encapsulates sort of the fear of consequence and like the ability to face one's own mistakes 
and it's just it's so dark and so twisted and by you do have um a catharsis that takes place that didn't happen in reality so i think the only flip side is that the ending of the film does not mirror specifically what happened in the actual true story right so that's interesting that you, you know it's decided funny. to do that have you ever watched i just started watching the series fargo Yes, I do like... I Have do you li- seen the first episode of the new season? No, not yet, but the first um, it f- season is great. Yeah, first season was great. First episode of the new season, uh, basically the same thing happens. So, f- mm. Except for... Insta- uh, but it is one of... I suppose the Fargo show is supposed to be, quote-unquote, based on true stories. So they're probably... It's probably... They probably pulled it from the same oh. story. Oh, Okay. Um, instead of me, Minas. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, um, it's Kirsten Dunst's character. Kirsten Dunst, yeah, who's kind of similar actress, but yeah, that kind of. I mean, it only happens. The, it's over already. That like, totally I'm not really makes spoiling sense. anything. This is like the event that's setting off the rest of the season. But it's, it's interesting that hmm. you start describing it, and that's what I just watched. Wow. No, but also, I, on the I, Wikipedia page it says that it is whitewashed. Apparently, the uh, woman was actually black. Yeah, it's on a I list know, of whitewashed film. <laughs> That's one thing that I, I'm I'm de- deciding to look past based on the strength of Mina Savari's performance and the fact that I've never really cared for her as an actress. But then, yeah, out of nowhere, like this role for her was just like, damn, okay, well, she can pull it off, and she sure does. Um, it's a really interesting battle between the, these two characters throughout, and of course. There's people, you know, shockingly so, just like you do in any movie where somebody's stuck in a situation or in peril, people like neighbors show up. So, like, you mm-hmm. know, things like that happen that you can sort of come to expect in a movie like this. But um, like, like hard candy. Yeah, or, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Where it's it's one of the it's the Hitchcock thing where it, it, I'm guessing I haven't seen it, but they try to make you root for different people at different points in the movie. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean. You're pretty much with the the guy who's stuck in the windshield for the most part, but but you might not necessarily want her to right, right, exactly. Yeah. No, she she allows for some sympathy at certain times to where you're not automatically dismissing her and thinking of her as the quote unquote villain right. or you know the bad person in this situation. So it's really one of Stuart Gordon's most accomplished films. Um, in terms of being non-horror, I think it's 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 something that I was I, I really encourage people to seek out. Um, but again, like I I think if you're you know expecting a, an amazing color palette or incredible cinematography or an appealing look, just just bear with bear with it for a little while when it starts out because you're like yeah it almost looks like it could have been on a TBS or Lifetime or something, but it it, it stands out once the material uh, kicks into high gear. It's it's a special film. It says it was on, produced under Amicus Entertainment, which is, I didn't think they existed anymore. They were Hammer Horror's uh, rival in the 60s and 70s. They made a lot of, I'm guessing Patrick and Patrick talked about it in the last uh, uh, podcast. They oh, yeah. Anthologies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. God, it all ties together. Yeah. So really quickly, um, I didn't get a chance to rewatch him, but I do know I like the Masters of Horror episodes he's done. I didn't particularly like Dreams in the Witch House, but again, if you cut it down, just because it's an hour, I think if you cut it down to 30 minutes and stuck it with those other ones, that would make 
really and the, the thing about dreams with witch house is it has the idea of geometry being scary which is a cool concept so i think maybe it gets away on that and uh i can't remember who plays the the, the rat in it but i remember that being amusing um but the other one is great it's maybe the the best thing that came out of the mostly disappointing masters of horror series um the black cat with uh with uh jeffrey combs and it's got beautiful uh digital photography where it's mostly black and white but then there's red highlights which sounds really hackneyed but is actually done really well in the film um i'm a pretty big fan of it and it was i guess developed into the one-man play that they've been doing together that would make sense yeah totally yeah, and uh, there's a couple of Masters of Horror I wouldn't mind revisiting, but yeah, for the most part, the, they were pretty, pretty underwhelming and disappointing. I was just like, you know, I, I give Cigarette Burns kind of a pass just because it was like, okay, it's John Carpenter being crazy and weird and twisted, and mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's certainly not it's it's not one one of his better films, but it's, it's kind of a step up from some of his latter work in terms of. Uh, something like Ghosts of Mars or The Ward. It's just him being a little bit more audacious. But I, um, I, I remember really liking the Black Cat, and yeah. uh, you know, it's it's Jeffrey Combs being at Grand Pole. What can you? What more? And what more do you need? Really good too. Yeah, like, it's hard to think. In the same way, it's hard to think of Bruce Campbell in dramatic roles until you see it. There, he's good. He's very good, and it's not tongue in cheek. He is wearing kind of an obvious uh, nose appliance, I suppose, but. It 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 holds together very well, I think. Yeah, and as far as um, more recent work from from Stuart Gordon, I don't know if he's got films in the works, but man, he's he's cranking out stage productions and and plays like nobody's business. So I mean, Reanimator the music I think is still going on, and there's this crazy, yeah. um, almost in relation to Stuck, he he adapted another insane true story. Um, I believe it's just, I think it's just called Taste. Uh, but it's, okay. it's one of his most recent plays that's based on a true story about, um, a guy on Craigslist who posted an ad looking for a guy who, um, was willing to give up his life so he can be eaten. Oh yeah. I know the story. Yeah. So, oh, um, so he did a, pl- oh, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, he did. A, he did a play based on this, and apparently, people have seen it, have had to leave, or have passed out. Nice, because uh, the gore gets pretty, pretty, pretty crazy for the stage, and that's uh, something I wish would be filmed and shown. Um, but who knows? I mean, since he is a Chicago guy, I keep hoping you know maybe his plays will show up uh, there. Yeah. I would think so. I would think so at some point. I mean, especially Reanimator the musical. I don't see why not. Yeah, it's never toured as far as I know, but it's been running for several years now. Yeah, yeah. There, and there's a weird... I saw on Amazon, there's a weird box set that for some reason includes this movie Deathbed from 2002 as a Stuart Gordon movie, but it's not. It's, it's one that he produced, which is really strange. I'm not even sure if he produced it. I think that he might just be the presenter type guy, but he might've had 
an active role. I've actually seen it I, uh, many years ago on VHS. Um, it's not, it's, it's not, I don't remember it being any good. And it's different than the, the movie that everybody always jokes about deathbed, the bed that eats, which is a, uh, weird seventies movie that is like not even describable. <laughs> uh, but I remember watching, you know, I guess it couldn't have been VHS cause it came out in 20, 2002. So I must've seen it on TV or something. And I remember it being not very good. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very excited for him to do f- more films. I hope, I mean, yeah, we'll see if he's got any in the future. But um, I mean, recently he's he's uh, been a contributor to some interesting films. I, I've yet to see like one of his favorite movies called The Swimmer that he helped put out on Blu-ray. So that's got Burt Lancaster. I'll, oh, it's uh, great. At, oh, yeah. I didn't know that he was behind the release of that. Yeah, it's very very interesting. It's uh. It's. I mean, I know I'm. I'm. I'm modernizing it, but it's a good companion piece to uh, Mad Men. Now that Mad Men's off the air. Nice, but um, yeah. I consider me a fan. Consider me you know, like like I said. Even some of the weaker films that I've seen of his has interesting things in them, and they don't grate on the nerves the way. Uh, I mean, I'm not comparing. I'm not playing the let's. Toby Hooper versus Stuart Gordon just because I've covered them recently within this month for the podcast. But um, I just had a lot more fun with Stuart mm-hmm. Gordon. And, you know, I think, um, you know, he's he's he's, uh, he's somebody that's just done a lot of varying degrees, even if, you know, something like Reanimator and From Beyond are sort of companion pieces. There, he still, he, he dabbled in science fiction and like oh, science fiction action um, you know, slapstick comedy, and then the psychological stuff. Like I said, it's it's almost like what he his little transition with King of the Ants and Edmund and Stuck, not necessarily mirrors what David Cronenberg went through, but kind of similar, kind of. And so I'm 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 a fan through and through of this guy, and maybe one day I'll get to sit down and talk with him because I would yeah. love to. He is continuously overlooked uh, for his you know for other for the John Carpenters and David Cronenberg's of the world. Sure. Uh, and it's, it's a bummer because like, uh, there's only one movie that on this list that I actively hated. Even yeah. the ones I didn't like had their, their qualities. So what would be your top three, Gabe? Oh, super boring. Top three reanimator from beyond and dolls. <laughs> Mine would be, Although Dolls would be number four now, mine would be Reanimator, From Beyond, and Stuck. So. Okay, well, I'll have to see Stuck. I would, watching too many movies to help out Patrick on this other thing. That Understandable. It all sort of became a blur. October is a busy month here at Director's It Club. is. <laughs> it's it a busy month is. working on a DVD Blu-ray site, too. Yeah. It not, can... it, it, all the summer releases and all the uh, horror re-releases all come out at the same time. Um, you know, and, and to speak on a positive note about Toby Hooper, I am glad that my uh, Blu-ray for Invaders from Mars will be coming soon because I'm still champ- <laughs> I'm championing that movie till the, till the very end, and I don't care what a couple of podcasters said about it. I still think it's good. So yeah, um, for the next official Directors Club, boy, are we going the complete 180 with. Uh, you know, it's funny because I should look up how to say his first name, so I'm going to just go with 
Kislowski, the director of the Three Colors trilogy, the Decalogue, um, a Polish filmmaker whose earlier work I really need to see. I'm a huge fan of the Three Colors trilogy. Bill Ackerman will be returning for a very epic discussion on a Polish director that um, is very renowned and somebody that he's got one of those intimidating filmographies where it's like, oh my God, where do I begin? And a lot of his films have gotten so many great reviews. And the Decalogue is maybe 10 hours long or something like that. So <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to get through it all, but um, November will be spent mostly with uh, with Kislowski. So that'll be fun. And of course, look forward to um, Gabe reappearing very shortly, probably within the next 10 or 11 days for the horror show sequel for 2015 here. Can't wait for that. Um, and of course, where can we read more from you? Uh, DVDactive.com. Splendid. Yes. And of course, you're on Letterboxd and Twitter. And all I that did stuff. join Twitter finally. Gabe M. Powers. And then Letterboxd, yeah. If you're friends with Patrick or Jim, you can probably find me on there. <laughs> Excellent. And of course, you can visit directorsclubpodcast.com and send me an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Um, tw- both Twitter and Letterboxd, I am at Instant Jim. Thank you so very much for listening, and do um, leave us a review at iTunes. Like I said, you'll be entered to win an Amazon gift card for 25 bucks. Heck of an incentive. And uh, stay tuned for the next episode um, in November. So thanks again, Gabe, for being on the show. This was a lot of fun. It was. Thank you. Take the razor to my throat. It'll be faster. He has a taco. He's smoking a cigar. He's going to get a lap dance from the fat woman. <laughs>